Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. And no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. Pride Toronto organizers invited the protest group Black Lives Matter to march as honored guests in this year's parade. About two-thirds of the way along the route, the invited protest group held a protest, a mid-intersection sit-in, stopping the parade. They threatened to stay put until Pride Toronto organizers signed a list of demands that included excluding police force floats and booths from Pride. We are not telling individual cops and individuals that they can't participate. What we are saying is that the presence of seven police forces creates an unsafe situation for a number of uh, marginalized communities. Pride Toronto's executive director and its co-chair showed up to sign the demands and get the parade going after a half-hour delay. Black Lives Matter participants celebrated what seemed like a win, but Pride Toronto's co-chair saw their demands as a starting point for discussions. My reaction was to listen to them, to hear what they had to say, and to look at how we explore further conversation to meet their requests. Today, Black Lives Matter organizers said they fully expected Pride Toronto to take that approach. We're not surprised, uh, and I think that there's going to be a lot of negotiations, and I think there's going to be a lot of hard lines set from our end. Local and national police forces have been participating in Toronto Pride for years. Today, the head of the association that represents Toronto officers expressed disappointment Pride Toronto signed the document. We feel that we were thrown under the bus, and if that's the case, that they did, had no intent or they just wanted to keep the, the parade moving, they need to deal with it, and they need to deal with it now, and they need to offer uh, our members and all police uh, an apology. The Black Lives Matter protesters also demanded more funding and guaranteed space for pride events involving black youth and indigenous people who are LGBT. They also said everyone should remember that Toronto's pride parade itself began 35 years ago as a protest march. Ron Charles, CBC News, Toronto. Canada. We should move to Canada. An ugly scene caught on camera last week on a streetcar in northern England. Young men yelling racial slurs before other riders forced them to exit the tram, calling them a disgrace to England. 
racist anti-immigrant acts such as these have become all too common over the past week. Britain's National Police Chiefs Council says it has seen a 57% spike in hate crime complaints since the United Kingdom voted to leave the EU, something stressed by members of Parliament in the British House of Commons. The scenes and behaviour we have seen in recent days are despicable and shameful. The leaders of the Brexit campaign have engendered an atmosphere where some people believe it is open season now for racism and This is turning Britain into a place we have never, ever been. Hate crime, by its very nature, is a rejection of the British values that have always bound us together. As anti-immigrant rhetoric ramps up in the United Kingdom and the United States, where presumptive Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump campaigns for a wall along the Mexican border and a ban on Muslim immigration, it can be easy for Canadians to feel smug. Well, today we'll explore racism in our own country and ask how the rise of anti-immigrant political rhetoric abroad is affecting us here at home. In the past few months, a pig's head was left outside a local mosque in Quebec City. A woman in London, Ontario, wearing a Canada t-shirt, verbally assaulted a Muslim woman in a supermarket. Police in Nanaimo, British Columbia, investigated racist graffiti found on bus stop advertisements featuring real estate agents of Asian descent. And just last week, another incident in Toronto. Here's Lorraine Fry describing what she witnessed while riding a streetcar in the city on Tuesday. I started hearing some abusive language. I could see that the person was a white male, looked to be in his 50s, and that he was standing and just sort of hurling racist abuse at this young black woman who was sitting there. He was using the N-word all the time, basically invoking Trump and saying, just you wait until Donald Trump is elected president and then you'll all be deported. So she responded by saying, please stop, you're upsetting me. Uh, And then it, it escalated. The woman behind her started to cry and it, it just continued. I mean, just horrible racist abuse. I heard this other black gentleman about probably in his early 30s who very respectfully said to him look you know this is not the way to behave you can't be like this you're being extremely disrespectful and the guy reached inside his jacket got out this can of mace and sprayed the young black man right in the eyes and in the face he threw up then it was obvious that he couldn't see at all and uh, he was in real agony There were so many people who gathered around him to, you know, try and help him. Out came Benadryl because that might help. This off-duty nurse came to help him. And when the conductor stopped the car, of course, the doors flew open and he flew out. And a couple of guys actually tried to catch him. The response of one of the people was, you know, well, he's clearly crazy. Uh, And you just need to, you know, say nothing. Um, It didn't seem to me that he was clearly crazy or drunk. He was just an angry, abusive, racist white man. So Lorraine Fry describing an incident on a Toronto streetcar last week. As as incidents like these raise alarm bells, some Canadians are finding ways to fight back against racism. Kim Fry, no relation to Lorraine there, was out shopping in her Toronto neighbourhood a couple of weeks ago when she ran into an anti-refugee rally organised by the ultra-right anti-Islam group Pegida. And her reaction? 
create a rally of her own. Kim Fry is with us in the Toronto studio. Kim, hello. Hi there. Uh, what did you see that day when you went out and you ran into that racist rally? Yeah, well, I was sort of taken aback. I was out shopping with my daughter on a Saturday afternoon in the neighborhood. And it was a sidewalk sale, a little bit of a street festival. So there was more people than usual. Typical and, kind of summer Canadian stuff. Exactly. Yeah? And we saw, uh, you know, about a dozen people or so gathering with Canadian flags and signs. And so, was, you know, as an activist, I was a little curious about who they were. And then when I started to read the content on their signs, at first they just said uh, Canadian values, Pegida. And I didn't really know what Pegida was. But then as... They walked past, there started to be some signs that were clearly targeting um, Muslims and the Islamic community, um, hate fugees, we won't let in. Um, uh, there was stuff about men needing to protect their wives from the rapists that we were letting in, and and they were chanting, protect Canadian values. So I started running after them and saying, you guys can't be here, this is racist, and their big line is, Islam is not a race, it's a religion. And a few of them wanted to engage in an argument with me. My daughter was really uncomfortable with my level of confrontation, which was intense. I think I was still reeling from Orlando and from the murder of Joe Cox. And, and was so, it instantaneous as well? Or did you think about it before you went out? No, I would just totally react. I was in reaction, yeah. knee-jerk mode. And so, uh, so I talked to them and a couple of them kind of got a bit aggressive, but there was one woman who was like, no, we're here to stay calm. We're trying to reach people. Um, so I sent my daughter off to Book City and then got out my phone and started to document and try to talk to them again. And yeah, it was fairly intense. How did they react? What kind of con <laughs> Did you have a conversation? Oh, it was, it was more heated than a conversation, partly because I knew there wasn't really the opening for a conversation. And there is one of me um, who's almost seven. I'm almost seven months pregnant. And I was feeling vulnerable and also just shaken by the whole thing. I had not expected to see that in my neighborhood. So I hadn't kind of prepared myself with what I was going to say and how I was going to reason with people who seemed unreasonable. Tell us more about them. Who, like, who were they? Were they from the neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Do you know? Um, I didn't recognize them as people from the neighborhood. And um, when I went home after uh, the incident, I, of course, immediately went to research Pegida and realized that they stand for the patriotic Europeans against the Islamification of the West. And they're a Dresden-based organization that have been pretty active in Europe. Um, and that the leaders, both in Germany and the UK, had been on trial for inciting and being involved in violent anti-immigrant actions. And then as things came out, I posted pictures on Facebook of the incident, what happened and what I saw, and it kind of went a little viral. And and just before we leave who yeah. those protesters were, there were a couple of them who were wearing Trump hats. Yeah. And one of them had a Trump button and uh, they were like, they kept saying, you know, things are going to be better when Donald Trump becomes president and you'll see, and he's, he's worth, or he's fighting back. He finds this a worthwhile issue, but Canadians are in the dark and we need to let Canadians know that this is happening here too. Okay. So stage one of your resistance was to confront them uh, immediately. Stage two, you go on social media. Stage yeah. three, you organize your own rally. Yeah. So I had a meeting. So that happened on Saturday. I had a meeting on Wednesday. About a dozen or so people came, some local people in the neighborhood and some other anti-racist activists. And we ended up having a rally one, exactly one week later on the Saturday. And what did you do in the rally? 
Um, well, we had about 70, 75 people. We gathered on the same corner that they gathered on, although our numbers were much larger. Um, had a few speakers, including um, some local families who were involved in, in welcoming refugees. Because when this happened, down the street in Bloor West Village, our member of parliament and city councillor were involved in a welcome to Sir- new Syrian refugees kind of picnic. There was an event going on. So I don't know if the timing was coincidental or not. So we invited them to speak. We then um, had stickers and signs and went through the neighborhood and encouraged businesses to put refugees welcome signs in their windows and um, finished at High Park, which is a very positive welcoming message um, that refugees are welcome in Bloor West Village, but racism and Islamophobia is not. Those, uh, the, the Pegida protesters, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, they're Canadians. They have as much a right to free speech as as you do, but you think they crossed a line. Why do you think they crossed a line? Well, our, interestingly, my MP and my city councilor would do nothing about it for that same reason. They said, well, this, you know, I don't like what they're saying, but there's free speech. For me in Canada, one thing we do is differentiate between free speech and hate speech. And when we have speech that targets a particular community and paints a whole group of people with a very broad strokes of a brush, to me, that incites hate. And when I see the kind of messaging that Pegida has on their Facebook group and on their website, it's much less tame than maybe the, well, and the signs weren't even that tame, but they were trying to give a kind of like, we're just concerned Canadians message. A lot of them were wearing Canadian flags on their shirts or carrying Canadian flags, but there is a more insidious, hateful undercurrent to what their message is. And especially if you go on their Facebook page, it's like horrific. I mean, do do you think things have changed in the past few months with the Trump candidacy and the Brexit campaign? I mean, these people feel influenced by Pegida. That's, you know, dates back a few years. Do do you think something has changed in Canada? Absolutely. I'm really concerned with uh, the kind of freedom that people have to attack Islam with very little understanding of of what it's about, um, to generalize about a whole religion and group of people based on, um, you know, uh, hardly any information and a lot of rhetoric from politicians. And I see this, like my daughter's 13 and she has friends who I have to kind of re-educate as they have these pretty strange ideas. Um, And they are influenced by Trump. They are influenced by the discourse coming out of the UK. And I think it's sort of kind of created a freedom for people to say things that are quite hateful, racist and xenophobic. Whereas 10 years ago, there wouldn't be that space to explore these, um, these ideas. What did the New York Times say? On the brink of fascism. Today's paper. On the brink of fascism. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. What is everybody in Europe worried about now? Why genetic annihilation? All these people from Syria coming up in here. People from Iraq. And it's some of them from 
the other side of the Mediterranean, sure enough. Now, we let as many as we could drown, but it's still some. And they're coming up in here. It's an article in the New York Times today about a group of German people who were killing immigrants, darker people from Turkey. The United Kingdom's vote to leave the European Union has spurred chaos, politically and financially, and now advocacy groups are asking whether the vote is also linked to more reports of xenophobic attacks. Minorities and foreigners are reporting they've been victims of violence and intimidation since the Brexit referendum. UK police forces are tracking hate crimes through an online website, and data shows that some 330 incidents were reported just last week, much higher than the usual weekly average of about 60 incidents reported in the weeks before the vote. Even outgoing British Prime Minister David Cameron has addressed the rise in hate crimes. Whatever we can do, we will do to drive these appalling hate crimes out of our country. We reached out to Esma Giraj. She's a communications officer at the social justice group Citizens UK in London. She also identifies as a British Muslim and wears a hijab. And I want to warn listeners, we're going to be talking about some graphic incidents. Esmat Jiraj joined us via Skype, and I asked her what happened to her. Last week, I was walking to my office in East London in the afternoon, and I had a gentleman walking very purposefully towards me, who kind of then shouted at me to F off out of his country. Of course, I was very shocked, um, but reflecting on this, this has made me quite angry. To be clear... It is your country, isn't it? Very much so. I was born and brought up here. I've spent my whole life actually in London, and I very much identify myself as as a British citizen. So nothing like this has ever happened to you before? Um, I've never experienced any kind of racial hate crime, but there definitely does seem to have been a rise in racist and xenophobic incidents following the Brexit outcome. How do you explain that? Can you draw a straight line from these kinds of incidents to the vote to leave the European Union? It would be very difficult to prove anything at this point in time because the figures are still very much being plated. But the fact that there has been, I think it's a 57% rise in number of reported incidents, according to the National Police Chiefs Association, in the last week alone, does indicate that there has been some sort of trigger to inspire this kind of rise, with many people actually being told, you know, we voted for you to leave. Why are you still here? When are you leaving? Now, that does suggest that there is a very strong causal link to the referendum. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that those voters who voted leave are racist or or sympathetic to racism and xenophobia. Unfortunately, the leave campaign was somewhat hijacked by a very xenophobic narrative. And many people, when it came to voting, did not actually fully appreciate or understand the various different nuances of what they were voting for. Have you heard of anything that transcends the merely insulting or offensive to the physical? One of my friends actually last weekend intervened when a shopkeeper was being racially abused and was actually threatened with rape if she didn't stop interfering. Now, something like that is incredibly alarming, in fact, very quite obscene. I mean, I think such incidents only kind of serve to make me more angry and much more firm in my identity. And this has been reaffirmed by many of my colleagues, um, alongside actually people from across Britain, claiming, you know, this is not happening in our name. There is no place for hate. People of all colours, all backgrounds, all races, all religions are very much welcome here in Britain. In fact, our organisation is coordinating an action across uh, 30-odd stations in London on Monday to to kind of declare that there is no place for hate crime. They'll be distributing stickers that say Love London, 
and also details on how people can go about reporting hate crimes. This is a criminal activity. You can actually report it. It not only feeds into the statistics, but the police do actually respond to it very strongly and very firmly. That was Esma Jiraj. She's the media and communications officer at Citizens UK, a social justice organization. She joined us from London. Yeah, and since we're talking about ropes, white folks, what you know about ropes? Yeah, what you know about trees and men swinging from them that look like me? Seven tonight, imagine waking up and seeing this out your front window, a stuffed animal hanging from a tree with a noose tightened around its neck. The Bryant family lives on Long Lake. They're African-American and say this isn't the first time they've been harassed because of their race. The family moved into their home two years ago. The disturbing discovery came this morning. My daughter found it. She found it this morning. She was out, uh, you know, just gardening around the tree, and she came and told my husband. And he came and told me. I guess they didn't really want to alert me because I was really upset about it. I was angered over it. And it's not the first time the family has felt they were being harassed and targeted because of their race in the two years they've owned the home. I don't know who it is. I know some of the people here are friendly and some of the people here are downright ignorant. Bryant is a real estate agent who sells homes in the area. The family lived in West Bloomfield before moving on the lake. We're African Americans and there's not many of us on this lake. And um, it's really gotten to be not everyone, but there's a select few that they don't want us out here. Jill's husband, Edward, spent 37 years with the Detroit Police Department. Yes, I like it. I love it out here. Serenity. You know, you can come out and drink a cup of coffee. It's quiet most of the time, except for the people that stop by and pay us visits. The Oakland County Sheriff's Office confirms they're investigating the incident. Bryant says it's the second call they've had to make to police since owning the home. He says he's going to beef up the protection. He's given us added security now. Special attention. Seven feet. Barren, strange fruit. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Are investigating after a man was found hanging from a tree in Piedmont Park early Thursday. Just before 5 a.m., police said security officers found a man hanging from a tree near the Charles Allen entrance. He was pronounced dead on the scene, and both the Atlanta Police Department and the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office said that it looked like a suicide. The official cause and manner of death will be determined after an autopsy. After widespread skepticism arised on social media about the death, Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed released a statement calling the event disturbing and saying that it demands their full attention and that the Atlanta Police Department is conducting a robust investigation. Then the sudden smell 
St. Louis Church is the target of vandals. It appears they started a fire inside the church and spray-painted a racist message on the outside. Nigga! Fox 2's Jeff Bernthal is live with a look at the damage at the church, Jeff. So puzzling for the congregation, the pastor here, the uh, spray-painted uh, message up on a door there contains uh, some offensive words. And then here you've got somebody breaking through this window, starting a fire on the inside. It's boarded up now, but an insurance adjuster puts the damage at about $200,000. St. Paul Missionary Baptist Church has a lot to take in. There's all this damage and then a bizarre message spray painted on the door. It refers to children of Israel and uses a derogatory term for African Americans. The message say God chose us, but we thought that we all were God's chosen children, you know, but this just shows you the level of hate in our city, not only in our city, but it's happening even across our country. It's not very clear, but there is some surveillance video. If you look in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, the pastor believes those two persons are responsible. We've reported on other recent church vandalism in North St. Louis. Eastern Baptist Church on St. Louis Avenue was hit at the end of May. And then a couple days later, bricks and concrete thrown through didn't notice Memorial the holes Baptist in the Church on glass from the I guess the pastors really need to come together, brainstorm, and see how can we protect our congregations against this hatred going on in our city. The most recent damage hit the pastor of this church especially hard because he says he built this church with his own hands, including an expansion. Well, of course, it's disheartening and it's hurtful, but as a congregation, we stand on faith. So we, this to us is just something that was evil that God's going to turn into good. The pastor says he needs time to think about where the congregation will worship and wants to find a way to chase hate out of the hearts of those responsible. I pray that you repent, and I pray that you understand what you did is detrimental to a lot of people. You've hurt a lot of people, but you have not broke a lot of people. This church located on Gilmore Avenue in North St. Louis, and according to the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, the area's bomb and arson unit is investigating. Good evening, everybody. I know we've been on a long flight, but given the extraordinary interest in the shootings that took place in Louisiana and Minnesota, uh, I thought it'd be important for me to address all of you directly. Uh, and I want to begin by expressing uh, my condolences uh, for the families of uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. As I said in the statement that I posted on Facebook, we have seen tragedies like this too many times. The Justice Department, I know, has opened a civil rights investigation in Baton Rouge. Uh, the governor of Minnesota, I understand, is calling for an investigation there as well. Uh, as is my practice, uh, given my uh, institutional role, uh, I can't comment on the specific facts of these cases. And I have full confidence in the Justice Department's ability to conduct a thorough and fair inquiry. But what I can say is that all of us as Americans should be troubled by these shootings because these are not isolated incidents. They're symptomatic 
of a broader set of racial disparities that exist in our criminal justice system. And I just want to give people a few statistics uh, to try to put in context. I mean, really put everything into context. 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 Looking at behavior in context. Now, whether he actually meant context, as I say it, I say the context is a system of racism, white supremacy. Context, why emotions are so raw around these issues. According to various studies, not just one, but a wide range of studies that have been carried out over a number of years, African Americans are 30% more likely than whites to be pulled over. After being pulled over, African Americans and Hispanics are three times more likely to be searched. Last year, African Americans were shot by police at more than twice the rate of whites. African Americans are arrested at twice the rate of whites. African American defendants are 75% more likely to be charged with offenses carrying mandatory minimums. They receive sentences that are almost 10% longer than comparable whites arrested for the same crime. So that if you add it all up, the African American and Hispanic population who make up only 30% of the general population make up more than half of the incarcerated population. Now these are facts. And when incidents like this occur, there's a big chunk of our fellow citizenry that feels as if because of the color of their skin, they are not being treated the same. And that hurts. And that should trouble all of us. This is not just a black issue. It's not just a Hispanic issue. This is an American issue that we should all care about. All fair-minded people should be concerned. For the second time this week, the fatal shooting of a black man by police officers has been videotaped, and this time live-streamed on a cell phone by a stunningly calm or maybe shocked LaViche Reynolds. She began streaming on Facebook just after her boyfriend, 32-year-old Philando Castile, was shot. And she says on the tape that they'd been pulled over for a broken taillight, that Castile told the officer he was licensed to carry a gun and was reaching for his license when he was shot. And a warning, this tape is very difficult to listen to. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled oh, over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand out. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh, my God, please don't tell me he's dead. We are going to be reporting on that story today, but we start in Baton Rouge, where the Justice Department has started an investigation into Tuesday's shooting of 37-year-old Alton Sterling. He was tasered, then pinned down by officers who yelled that he had a gun and shot him. There's now a second video. It was taken by a shop owner who knew Sterling. It is also very difficult to listen to. Edmund Jordan is a state representative in Baton Rouge and a spokesman for Alton Sterling's family. Uh, representative Jordan, your thoughts first on this new video. The, the new video uh, sheds uh, a different light. If you, if you listen to the first video, at least when I listened to it, 
I only heard four shots, but it had been reported that there were up to six shots. And if you listen to the second video, you can hear those two extra shots. So to shoot someone six times at point blank range, I mean, is, I mean, it's very disturbing. Others who have viewed the tape, uh, the Daily Beast, for instance, they say that it, it doesn't support the officer's claim that Sterling's gun represented a threat. It appears to have been in his pocket. But this is the kind of thing that will be investigated by the Justice Department. Meanwhile, what does the family want to see? Ultimately, the family wants to see justice. They want to see the truth come out and justice. And and we believe that both videotapes speak for themselves. And I think people can clearly see that Alton was not posing any threat to the officers. If that was a gun that actually came out of his pocket, he was not reaching for that. It was not accessible, immediately accessible to him. But Representative Jordan, do you, the family, have any sympathy for the officers, given that there had been a 911 call that somebody was wielding a gun. Again, the shop owner said Alton Sterling was not flashing his gun. Other reports say that there was a homeless man who had asked him for money and he had displayed a gun. But in any event, the police officers arrived. They are increasingly confronting people who are armed in the United States, and they don't know, and in that moment when they're down on the ground, don't know what they're confronting. Well, look, I would tell you that I have sympathy for officers in general who are confronted with dangerous situations, obviously. This situation should have been handled completely differently, though. I mean, think of it this way. In Louisiana, we're a concealed carry state, so we can carry a gun as long as you have a permit. And if that same 911 call had come through saying that someone was had a gun or was brandishing a gun, you know, there are other ways to disarm individuals peacefully and without having to shoot them six times resulting in their death. And we should say that Alton Sterling did have a gun. Um, the video shows the police officers removing something from his pocket. We're not sure if that was the gun, but the, he reportedly had a gun, and he shouldn't have. He's not illegally allowed to have one since he had passed criminal charges. But as we're seeing in the Minnesota case, there are people who are legally allowed to carry guns, and it can still end up in a shooting fatality. What other questions do you and the family have? Well, you know, we really want to know if we can determine who that anonymous caller was, obviously. But more so, we want to know why the officers took such an aggressive approach when it could have been handled in a much different way. Do you have questions about the police body cameras? Well, we certainly have questions about the body cameras. We have questions about the surveillance video. We have questions about the dash cameras because all those things were supposed to be available and accessible to law enforcement, and we know they confiscated the surveillance video. And so why hadn't that been released to the public? We have two other videos that are out there already. The, the general public in the world has seen most of what has happened. So why not show everything and let the world determine for themselves? What about a, the call for a, a boycott of local businesses? Won't that hurt the very people in your community who own some of those businesses? Well, if some see that as a, as a, a measure that can help us with that situation, then I say fine, but I'm not sure that that is a, a, a view shared by, by everyone. And, and what I will say is this, part of the, the catalyst for the boycott was because the mayor would not turn the investigation over to an independent third party. Now that we do have an independent third party investigating the situation, 
I'm not sure if that's such, as much of a pressing issue. That's Evan Jordan, State Representative for Baton Rouge. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? Joining us now this morning is the mother of Philando Castile, Valerie Castile, as well as his uncle, Clarence Castile. We are so sorry for your loss this morning. We know that this is your first interview and that this is a very hard morning for you. Thank you so much for being with us. Mrs. Castile, have you seen that video that we just played of this incident? No, I haven't uh, looked at the video because I know it's um, not a good thing to look at. I don't want to, I want to remember him the way I last saw him leaving my home earlier that evening. And how was that? I don't understand. How, how does he feel what, when What he did happen oh, right before beat. this? Well, earlier, uh, I'll say about 2 o'clock, he came to my house in order to go and get his hair done. And uh, he came back, and we chit-chatted, him and his sister. And uh, they had a conversation about the concealed carry permits that they both have. And they were saying that, um, you know, to be cautious. And my daughter said, you know what? I really don't even want to carry my gun because... I'm afraid that they'll shoot me first and then ask questions later. My gosh, that seems uh, like some sort of omen or something to hear that. Now, Mr. Castile, have you seen the video? Yes, I have. How do you explain what you see on that video? I've seen a, a young man, helpless, shot for no apparent reason. Um, I saw my nephew shot by a man clinging to his life, you know, and with, with no help. It, it, it was the most horrific thing I ever seen in my life. Yeah. We hear about things like this happening all the time around the United States and the world, you know, people being harmed and abused by people that we're supposed to trust with our lives, people that are supposed to protect serve and, and serve. protect us. And they, they tend to be our executioners and judges and murderers. I basically think that these things are happening because there is no checks and balances in the justice system and that a lot of our African-American men, women, and children are being executed by the police, and there are no consequences. So, in essence, I feel like it's becoming more and more repetitive. Every day, you hear of another black person being shot down, gunned down by the people that are supposed to protect us. My son was a law-abiding citizen, and he did nothing wrong. He had a permit to carry. But in, uh, with all of that, trying to do the right things and live accordingly by the law, he was killed by the law. Um, and it's devastating to us all. I'm outraged. We hear that, and that's understandable. And we understand why it feels as though we've seen far too many videos like this just the day before your son was shot. We saw one out of Baton Rouge. We've seen so many videos like this, certainly in my line of work. But this one, I have to tell you, is different. 
and in part it's because his his girlfriend was live streaming it and so you saw her reaction you saw her four-year-old daughter's reaction in the back seat and you saw your son's reaction have you spoken all of that all of that ha have all you spoken that. to his girlfriend we no we can't locate her no one knows where she is the last time i saw her is when my daughter and i came up on the scene and she was in the back seat of the uh falcon high falcon house police department's police car and they wouldn't even let us get close enough to her to even talk with her and you the came up, up again did, then but but did, you came up on the scene mrs castile because you had seen th this unfolding how did you know what was happening no we were get we were getting phone calls and my daughter was screaming in the house and i was like what's going on what's wrong with you the live and stream the last stream was going on i personally didn't see it but I knew something was going on and they were saying they were at Larpenter and Rice yeah. but then uh, they were saying you could see a Falcon Height sign yeah so I knew immediately that it had to be Larpenter and Snelling and we rolled up on the uh, incident and we couldn't get to her to talk to her. We were stopped by the police, and I asked them where was my son at. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to know where my son was because I didn't want my son to die alone. And what was the answer to where your son was? First, it was, I don't know. And then the uh, sergeant that was there at the site, he came back and told me that he was at uh, Hennepin County Medical. And I said, well, why did you take him there? Why didn't you just take him down to Regents Hospital? Because I thought that was a little bit closer than uh, Minneapolis. But by the time we got to uh, Hennepin County, he was already deceased. And they didn't let me see my son's body. At all. At all. She I have not seen him yet. I have not identified my son's body because they didn't let me. Do you, do you think that help came uh, in a timely enough fashion for your son? I have, no, I have no idea because everything was unfolding while I was driving to the incident. Uh, Mr. Kess, I, I can, I can, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to say that the help didn't come quick enough. And in a situation like this, it, it never does. Yeah. I mean, the, the police are all hyped up and the adrenaline is flowing and you know they're 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 in a certain place in their minds I mean the last thing they want to do is touch somebody offer some help you know but it from what I heard they did later you know a few minutes later they did try to revive him but I wasn't there on the scene I don't know how quickly it came but from what I seen on the the the, the live stream the officer was standing there with his gun still pointed at my nephew I mean, the man, the man was still standing there with the gun pointed at my nephew, screaming at him. And he was laying in the car, you know, swelling up, his arms swollen and hanging off his body and, and b blood everywhere. You know, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to understand, you know, what was going through their minds and things like that. But what I just happened? want to say that I appreciate Diamond streaming that video live because no doubt. we never would know exactly what happened had she not put that out there like that. Exactly. And then for him to blatantly shoot into that vehicle with that child in there exactly. and that female. And I know for a fact my son would never jeopardize his fiance and the child. 
by uh, doing anything to provoke this officer to think that no, his life is in, in danger. He wasn't an, he's not an officer. He's just a man. An officer is supposed to protect and serve. He's not an officer. That was a man who did that. Man, that man is a destroyer. Yeah. And he came into our lives and done something, took something from us. They, he, they took a very good person. And everybody that knows my son knows that he is a laid-back, quiet individual that works hard every day, pay taxes, yeah. and come home and play video games. Yeah. That's it. He's not a gangbanger. He's not a thug. He's very respectable. And I know he didn't antagonize that officer in any way to make him feel like his life was in danger. Or threatened. Mm threatened in um, any way. Mr. Castile, the St. Anthony Police Department that was involved says that in their 30-year history, they've never had a police shooting. I know that you've talked, you just talked about the police officer being hyped up. You do hear on that video, of Diamond's, Diamond's video, of the police officer yelling. How do you explain the state of mind that the police officer was in or what happened here that might have led to the police officer being so hyped up? It, trigger happy? No, no, I, I wouldn't say trigger happy. I would just say that the mere fact that my nephew had a firearm in his vehicle, he had a, a CCW permit, therefore he had the right given to him the permission and the privilege of the state of Minnesota to carry a firearm on his person. I think he was just black in the wrong place. That could be true, but he had permission and the privilege to carry a, fire, a firearm within this, this state. And from what I understand, Philando told them that he did have a firearm. I'm sure he did because and, and that was something that we always discuss. Comply. That's yeah. the key thing. The key thing in order to try to survive being stopped by the police is to comply. Whatever they ask you to do, do it. Don't say nothing. Just do whatever they want you to do. So what's the difference in complying and you get killed anyway? And, and we know there's pro we, we know if you take a, a, a concealing carry uh, class, you know, there's protocol when you get pulled over. Um, you let them know that you do have a permit and you have a weapon in your car. And that's what he did. And you let you tell that police, please let your partner know I have a weapon in the car. Okay, now I'm supposed to get my driver's license. I reach for my license or whatever, and then you unload. They unloaded on him. The, the, that man shot him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, one of the striking things about this video that Diamond shot is her composure. So at first, while your son and nephew is bleeding next to her, she is reporting quite in a, a quite measured fashion what just happened, She's giving her location of where she is, what transpired, and she's also communicating with the police officer in, again, a very composed, poised, calm fashion. How do you explain she was, how she, she was, was able to do that? She's the coolest girl i ever seen in my life. I don't know how she did it, but she managed to get the information out. Both of them guys are pretty laid back, and they're calm people. They're not aggressive, neither one of them. And that's why she was able to hold her composure, because that's in her nature, as well as him being calm and compliant, and that's in his nature. So that's why they got along really well, you know, 
you have two individuals with the same personality, yes, they will get along. And that's why she was able mm-hmm. to hold her composure, because she's laid back and she's calm like that. You know, that and video... And I want to applaud her again. That, that is nice. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You want to applaud how she handled herself. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because like I said in the beginning, we may never known the truth, the actual truth, because I don't know if that officer uh, man was wearing a, a body cam himself that would help explain some of the things that uh, took place. Dashboard cam, you know, I mean, there's 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 ways of getting information, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to do an investigation, I mean. And, and hopefully things, will, the proper things and the right information and the true information will come out. Yeah. You're still saying there ain't, there's no profiling, but it is. It is. We're being hunted every day. It's a silent war against African-American people as a whole. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. This week's police shooting of Philando Castile happened in a white middle-class suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota, called Falcon Heights. Today, there are flowers and a few mourners remembering the 32-year-old black man who was killed. Adrian Florido of NPR's Code Switch team has been speaking with people there. He started on Larpenter Avenue, where the killing took place. One of the people paying their respects to Castile was Anna Gambucci, who is white and lives up the street in neighboring St. Anthony. And what does your sign say? It says, Philandro Castile, murdered for blackness by my community police. Gambucci says hers is a liberal white neighborhood. And she says in the past, she's tried to get her neighbors to talk about how they could support the Black Lives Matter movement. But few people have been interested. That's why she came to this corner. Everybody is so delighted with their happy lives and feeling like there's so much do-gooding that's happening already. And... There is a willful ignorance. Some of the people here are downright ignorant. To the level of racial threat that people in our city, in our community, face. And our community has essentially killed this man. She says she hopes Castile's killing is a wake-up call to her neighbors. Across town in East St. Paul, where Philando Castile lived... Dorothy Harper and her cousin Shalanda Harper said they didn't need a wake-up call to know police and black people don't have a great relationship around here. They say they live it every day. Dorothy says she's been stopped on the street because the police thought she was a prostitute. She has four sons, the oldest is seven, and Castile's killing has shaken them. My son, he was just in the car with us. We were talking about it, and he, like, said he's going in the house to play with his dogs and play his video games. He doesn't want to come outside. He's, like, too scared to come outside. It's just too much for him. Scared of the police? He's scared of the police. They drive past. They don't even wave to them no more, like, because they said the police are bad. They kill people. Yeah. They think that they kill people now. Dorothy Harper says she fears it could be her son someday. Outside the Minnesota governor's mansion, which has been the center of protests, Adeni Alavi says it could have been him. A few years ago, he says he was walking down the street not far from where Castile was killed when officers rushed up and told him to freeze, apparently mistaking him for someone they'd been looking for. All I can make out is a silhouette of a person with a gun. And, okay, uh, and, and my demeanor is like, OK, you have to play it cool. You know, almost like it's 1920s, yes, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. You have to be easy. Every African-American male knows that. Alabi says after that, it took him a while to process what had happened. You don't think about it at the time, but you do think about it when you look back. When you look back, you say, I was that close. 
Alavi says keeping calm worked for him, but it very well could have ended differently. Adrian Florido, NPR News, St. Paul, Minnesota. And you're the prey. DFL Governor Dayton's strong condemnation of the fatal shooting of Philando Castile by a St. Anthony police officer has brought praise from some state lawmakers and criticism from others. Those conflicting reactions make it unclear whether any legislative remedies, including Dayton's proposal for a state task force on policing, will move forward next year. Tim Pugmire has more from the Capitol. During a Thursday afternoon news conference, Dayton described the shooting of an African-American man during a traffic stop as a terrible tragedy. He said nobody should be shot and killed over a broken taillight. Dayton also said he believed race was a factor. Would this have happened if those uh, passengers, the driver and the passengers, were white? I don't think it would have. So I'm forced to confront, and I think all of us in Minnesota are forced to confront, that this this kind of uh, racism exists. A day later, Dayton wasn't backing down, despite pushback from some law enforcement people. I stand by what I said yesterday, uh, based on the information I I don't have any new information uh, today. Still, Dayton's remarks rubbed some people the wrong way. Republican State Representative Tony Cornish of Vernon Center said Dayton's comments were out of line. I was upset. I wasn't going to make any comments. I had told my leadership that I was not going to comment until all the facts were in, but I think this kind of changed the game here. Cornish, a former law enforcement officer who chairs the House Public Safety and Crime Prevention Committee, first responded on his Facebook page accusing the governor of making an idiotic statement. Cornish later explained that he's concerned the governor's remarks will impact the shooting investigation, which is being conducted by the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. He said Dayton's injection of racism is prejudicing the inquiry. He had time to think about what he was going to say, and he said it anyway. And uh, I don't know how else to term it. Where, Where could that have come from? Because... I just feel that he was trying to please the advocacy groups that were knocking on his door. Dayton rejected Cornish's theory. He said his statement won't have any impact on the BCA's work. I don't think my comments are going to be uh, influential or should be influential on on how they conduct the investigation or what uh, their conclusions are. Dayton's remarks also surprised some lawmakers in a positive way. DFL Senator Jeff Hayden of Minneapolis said racism is an issue typically raised by social justice activists, not governors. Hayden, who is one of only three African Americans currently serving in the Minnesota legislature, said he was pleased to hear the governor make the statement. First of all, I praise him for raising the issue for people to have to wrestle with it. Um, And frankly, I agree with the governor. Um, And I think that most people of color, certainly most African Americans, intuitively felt like the governor was right. Dayton said he has meetings planned with NAACP leaders, black clergy, and law enforcement officials to discuss next steps. He said he wants to review the findings of a presidential task force on community policing and would consider launching a similar study here. DFL Senator Scott Dibble of Minneapolis said he supports that proposal. Dibble introduced several bills last session based on the task force recommendations. Dibble said his legislation would help improve the relationships between the police and communities that too often feel mistreated. Failure of the police to support these kinds of initiatives and reforms works directly against their own goals of promoting greater public safety. So I really welcome a change in culture and a change in attitude and a a much, much more positive reaching out. 
back and forth across this divide. The Castile case has also raised many questions about Minnesota's handgun laws and how police and permitted gun owners should handle traffic stops. The Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus is suggesting a hard look at police training and protocols for such interactions. Covering politics, I'm Tim Pugmire, Minnesota Public Radio News. You mentioned why you may think that Durant and Westbrook would leave OKC. Are you ready to put it on wax? I think I need to now because Kevin Durant is out the door. And I hate to say this to the people of Oklahoma City. I think it won't be long before Russell Westbrook is also traded. Oh, he's gone. And by no means do I want to disparage the great town of Oklahoma City. I've been there. I loved it. I just want to talk about young athletes. There's an evolution that happens from being young draft picks where you can't choose where you play versus young adults who have matured in the people that pay attention more in life than just sports. And for those that don't know, don't let KD, I do me, I chill, fool you. Don't let Russell and his outfits and all of that fool you. These are measured, smart guys that are politically and socially conscious. And I know that there were times in Oklahoma City with it being a small town, and I embrace the fact that both of those guys are really philanthropic. I appreciate the fact that they both have foundations. They both given themselves back to that community. But one thing that I did know, being in a small town, it did bug them that it was just that and the diversity wasn't there. So here's an example. In 2008, when Barack Obama got elected to be the first black president of the United States of America, his picture was put on the jumbotron during an Oklahoma City Thunder basketball game. And you know what the fans did? They booed. And it wasn't necessarily because he was a Democrat or a Republican, and I'm not trying to give a political party to any of the players. They took it as he was being booed because he was the first black president. And so because of that, when you're in uniform and you think of yourself as more than a job, that does resonate throughout the locker room. Damn you, Obama. Here at 5 o'clock, former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh is defending a tweet in which he told President Obama to, quote, watch out in regards to the Dallas police ambush. Eyewitness News political reporter Charles Thomas talked to Walsh about that post, which has now been removed from Twitter. Charles? Ravi, the late-night tweet by a former Northwest Suburban congressman ignited a Twitter firestorm overnight and calls for Joe Walsh to be arrested for threatening the president. Go kill the president of the United States. Nobody with a brain would say that. The one-time lawmaker, now conservative talk radio host, says the tweet to his 65,000 followers was misinterpreted. It read in part, this is now war. Watch out, Obama. Watch out, Black Lives Matter punks. Real America is coming after you. And what I said in that tweet was, hey, Obama, Black Lives Matter, watch out, man. Uh, The rest of America now is going to stand up and stand with our cops. Twitter took down the controversial message, but not before it and or a saved screen went viral. For one, singer John Legend read it and tweeted, Joe Walsh needs to be arrested for threatening our president. There were probably a thousand people last night and today because they told me 
they contacted the FBI and the Secret Service and said, Joe Walsh uh, is asking people to kill Barack Obama, arrest him. Neither the FBI nor the Secret Service would comment. Republican Walsh won the Illinois 8th District seat in 2010 and served two years before losing a re-election bid. He would not apologize for the tweet and continued to blame statements by Black Lives Matter activists and the president for turning many people against law enforcement. I think Obama's words and the deeds of Black Lives Matter, I think they have contributed to the death of police officers in this country. Walsh also told me that his critics have launched a campaign to have him fired from WIND Radio. At last report, I just uh, communicated by text with him a few minutes ago. He says he still has a job there. Now, let me just say, we have extraordinary appreciation and respect for the vast majority of police officers who put their lives on the line to protect us every single day. They've got a dangerous job. It is a tough job. But we start in Dallas, in the U.S., where people believed to be snipers have shot and killed five police officers and wounded six more in a coordinated attack during a protest against the killing of two African-American people this week. Police in the U.S. have said the ambush was carefully planned and executed and three people have been taken into custody. A fourth suspect died amid claims from media organizations in Dallas that he suffered a self-inflicted gunshot wound. In the last hour, speaking in Poland, U.S. President Barack Obama has given his reaction to what's happened. There has been a vicious, calculated, and despicable attack on law enforcement. Police in Dallas were on duty during doing their jobs, keeping people safe during peaceful protests. These law enforcement officers were targeted, and nearly a dozen officers were shot. Five were killed. Uh, but let's be clear, there's no possible justification for these kinds of attacks or any violence against law enforcement. Even as yesterday I spoke about our need to be concerned as all Americans about racial disparities in our criminal justice system, I also said yesterday that our police have an extraordinarily difficult job. That's the U.S. President Barack Obama speaking about the situation in Dallas. These shootings over the last 12 hours or so come after a year that have seen several incidents in which police officers in different parts of the U.S. have shot and generally killed African-American men. In one case this week, a man appeared to be under the control of the police, lying on the ground, when he was shot. In another case, a woman live-streamed the death of her partner after he was shot by police. Dr. Andrew Fall is a senior researcher at the Center of Criminology at the University of Cape Town. He's on the line from there now. Dr. Fall, good afternoon to you. If we take all of these incidents together, the history, the recent history of policing in, in the United States, it must surely point to some sort of problem with the culture of policing in America. Indeed. Um, the United States is a unequal society, and African Americans have for a long time, or since their introduction as slaves, um, been at the, the losing end of that inequality. Um, that plays itself out in policing. Police organizational culture all over the world serves to guide police action. Policing is very discretionary. Police have to deal with a huge range of tasks and problems in their daily work. And so it's quite normal in police occupations everywhere to develop certain ways of dealing with and responding to different scenarios. And unfortunately, that involves applying meaning to different bodies, different sexes, different places. And in America, it seems if you are an African-American man, 
the meaning applied to your body often means you are a threat and we will treat you differently. So does that mean in a way then that many police forces in America, perhaps all of them are, to use a phrase, institutionally racist? Would that be the right way to describe it? Um, I think it's difficult to generalize about the U.S. They have over 20,000 police forces, which sounds quite bizarre compared to us with our one national police force and a few metro organizations. And, of course, the United States is a massive country with huge diversity. Um, So I don't think we can blanket claim about everywhere, but there clearly is a problem um, of African-American men dying at the hands of police in many parts of the country. Um, I, I, I definitely wouldn't say it's, it's a national problem, but it's something which the nation as itself needs to interrogate. One of the, the interesting aspects of this, and, and you often see it in a situation like this, the American police force, whichever one is concerned, whether it be Dallas here, will have a spokesperson who is themselves an African-American, a senior officer in the police. You would have thought that that would change the culture of policing. And, of course, police services there have been integrated probably for a century in some places. It doesn't seem to actually work like that. Almost the culture of the institution seems to take hold. Certainly. And, again, this is something we see in policing all over the world, including in South Africa. So police, from their introduction about 200 years ago in England, have traditionally been people from marginalized groups in society who the elite of a society give uniforms and powers and sometimes weapons in the case of the U.S. and South Africa. And the elite said to them, you look after this other group of rowdy poor people and uh, let us get on with our lives. And I think that is what we're seeing in the U.S. So African-American men who have been probably born into similar poor, difficult environments often um, are given a, a leg up and given a, a career in the police, but as such, they've be, they're asked to manage the, the people they grew up with who weren't able to get jobs and who weren't given opportunities to thrive in the way that American society, or in our case, South African society, tells people they should thrive. And uh, and, and I guess there's a cognitive dissonance as 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 African American police and in South Africa black police officers then see themselves in the people they are asked to police. They see their, their past and their presence. And um, I think that can also, in some instances, lead to further aggression from African-American police towards African-American citizens. Um, the, the data that I've read about in the U.S. suggests that African-American police are more likely to shoot African-Americans than white police are. Um, and I, I've, I've observed plenty of times in the South African context black police officers treating black citizens very differently to their, how they treat white citizens. So I think there is something very interesting and problematic going on there. There must be huge lessons for us. We have a police force that's often accused of being too aggressive, too violent. We are obviously in many ways a much more violent society and, and you talk about the difficult decisions police officers have to make. It must, it must place more stress perhaps on our officers than in the U.S. Is this something we need to watch quite closely? There are important lessons in the U.S. for us? Um, certainly, um, and, and, and in uh, preparing to ch- chat to you, I actually looked at the figures, and based on my quick calculations, I think that in South Africa, police kill 7.5 civilians for every million cit- citizens of the country versus only 3.5 in the U.S. So South African police seem to be killing people at a rate twice that of the United States. And if we count to the number of people who die in police custody every year, which don't, they don't necessarily die as a result of police action. But if we count them together with those who die as a result of police action, we are, we have police killing people 12 times faster than America. Um, 
So I think this is a big problem here. We definitely shouldn't be pointing fingers at the United States. We've got plenty of issues to sort out back home. Dr. Andrew Fall, thank you very much indeed. A senior researcher at the Center of Criminology at the University of Cape Town. We need that perfect hair. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. And now another perspective from Ron Martinelli. He is a retired uh, detective and police officer, and he testifies as an expert on police procedure. He served in the San Jose uh, Police Department for some 25 years. He believes that the Black Lives Matter movement is encouraging anti-police violence. He's with us now. Mr. Martinelli, thank you so much for speaking with us. Happy to be with you. Do you believe that there is a war against the police? And if so, who is waging it? I absolutely believe that there is a war on police. Uh, There are a number of factions that are waging the war on police, and one of the leading factions is the Black Lives Matter movement. And what is the the nature of this war? Well, the the movement, Black Lives Matter movement, has four basic objectives with respect to uh, diminishing law enforcement. They want to disenfranchise the law enforcement from the community. They want to defund law enforcement. They want to diminish... Uh, their involvement in the community and their stature, and they want to basically dissolve law enforcement. And the reason is because police officers are protectors of the rule of law. And the Black Lives Matter movement is a black nationalist, revolutionary Marxist movement that is tied into a much larger international movement referred to as One World, One Struggle. Have you ever actually interviewed anybody connected to the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes, I have. I've emailed emailed members of the movement uh, and have uh, listened to their responses. I've had dialogue with them. And I think the most telling things are the research we do where we pull up the actual videos of the founders of the movement going out and giving speeches and talks to various uh, community groups. So tell me how you then extrapolate from that, that you think that there is a war on police. Well, the Black Lives Matter movement has done everything consistent with having a war on police. The rhetoric is violent. You know, the most recent uh, killings, the, the killer stated that Part of the reason that he was inflamed enough to kill the police officers was because of the rhetoric from the Black Lives Matter movement. So so what should people do who object to the way the police have conducted themselves in their communities? What what should they do in your view? Well, they have a constitutional right to protest and, and to, uh, to, to protest peacefully uh, in the streets and to work with their legislators, work with their leaders. Uh, to bring about, uh, you know, effective change in policing. Uh, I think we, we need to keep in mind we have problems in law enforcement brought about by the community, such as drug involvement, gang involvement, 
uh, weapons violations? Uh, do we need to continue to evolve forward? Absolutely. But the community also needs to bear responsibility for their actions. And I think everybody that that is reasonably thinking and informed understands that. Uh, Ron Martinelli is a former police officer, police detective. He served some 25 years in the San Jose Police Department. He now testifies as an expert witness on police procedure in cases um, around the country. He was kind of to join us via Skype from Mexico. Um, Mr. Martinelli, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me on. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 9th, 2016. So I have been told. Compensatory call-in. Folks have commentary they would like to share. The number to dial, 641-715-3600. Four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four. Nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if you could please not wait until uh, we get to the end of the broadcast. If you think you have something you would like to share, certainly there are many, many things uh, that have happened uh, over the past seven days. Go ahead, get your hand up. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, this just like the workplace racism weekly session. Uh, this is not a spectator session. This is designed for non-white listeners to dial in, share their counter-racist thoughts, observations, suggestions, uh, things we can, should be doing, try to solve the problem of racism, white supremacy. A few quick observations uh, that I will get in and then I'll get right to the phone lines. Uh, I'm sure people have many things they would like to to say. Uh, I, at the end of the week, think it is even more important uh, that the purge is how all of this started. Uh, It was released 4th of July weekend uh, last Friday. They had the big uh, release for the long weekend going into the Monday uh, holiday this past week. And then after that, the carnage ensued uh, all week long. And I haven't uh, heard too many folks uh, making a connection between the two. There have been a few articles uh, here and there. And I know particularly with the situation in Baton, Lur- uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, there were folks uh, who were spreading rumors or what have you. It seemed to be unfounded that there was going to be some sort of uh, revenge purge as a result of the shooting that happened in uh, Baton Rouge. But I certainly think that is uh, extremely important for context for people who saw the image that I had for today's broadcast on Facebook uh, with a picture uh, of Micah, Micah Xavier Johnson, the suspect in the Dallas police shooting. I had that next to uh, a graphic. It says, Make America Great Again, Donald Trump's campaign slogan. But that is not from the Trump campaign. That is a part of the purge paraphernalia. If you look at the bottom of it, and I think Pam, racism, WS.com, Pam, uh, who's been on the program many times before, she's written about the purge. We've talked about it. She said that a lot of the 
memorabilia and promotional material associated with that film franchise over the last three years. They have had uh, videos and posters and things. It looks like some sort of real political advertisement. Like you have to look at it really, really close. Even the websites that they've had, you have to look at it really, really close to see, oh, this is some sort of movie promo uh, trying to get people to go to the theaters to see, you know, whatever this flick is supposed to be. But that is purge paraphernalia uh, with the Trump slogan, make America great, uh, make America great again with the bloody hand reaching to the heavens. Moving forward, I neglected to include, I had a lot of uh, different clips that I could have included. There was a lot that went down this week. I neglected to include the D.C. uh, firefighter. There was a black male in D.C. who got in trouble for uh, posting on social media. This was before the incident in Dallas, saying that uh, police officers uh, needed to be dealt with uh, with counter violence uh, as a result of these continued shootings. I'm paraphrasing, but they put him on administrative leave and are saying that he violated their social media policy. Uh, I am very very curious to see how folks are going to respond to that now, uh, given what transpired just a few days after there was all this attention uh, and focus on him for his Facebook postings. I just neglected to include that, but there was a lot uh, to include. Uh, a couple quick things uh, that I wanted to get in, and then, as I said, we'll get right to the phone lines. Uh, I did not watch uh, really any of the video. I saw like a quick second, and I just tried to get. Uh, get it off my screen, get away, because I just was not interested in looking at the footage uh, for any of the shootings that took place uh, this week, Philando Castile or uh, Alston Sterling. I just was not interested, uh, and that's generally the stance uh, that I have taken uh, on any of these incidents. There are quite a few of the police shootings that have happened uh, over the last, I would say, at least 18 months, uh, and I just stopped uh, watching the footage uh, I talked about before, as have many of our other guests, uh, that that is a part of psychological terrorism. I've written about this, uh, posted one of the articles uh, that I wrote covering this topic specifically uh, and just continuing to show images of black people being brutalized. Really, my logic is the same reason that I did not watch uh, Roots, uh, that I was not looking forward to seeing 12 Years a Slave, even though we read the book and did the analysis here. Uh, Any of the other uh, films, no matter what era, whether it's dash cam footage or we're going to do some sort of dramatization of Negro enslavement. Uh, I just, in my opinion, all of this, it serves the purpose of racism, white supremacy in terms of branding these images of black brutality, getting people comfortable with images of black death, black suffering, black misery. I think a lot of times all of this, the slave uh, slave flicks as well as the dash cam and body cam and cell phone video Footage, uh, it gets presented under the guise of this is somehow going to solve the problem. Uh, and I think at least at this point, it should be painfully clear that is not true. We have had two years of intense saturation of all this footage. Every other day we get brand new body cam footage of Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and the folks from this week. And I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on and on. Laquan McDonald, how many other names uh, that you need? for shooting victims, and I have seen no evidence, and I don't think anybody can provide any evidence that we are any closer to solving this problem within the context of police terrorism and or the overall problem producing all of this, the system of white supremacy. In fact, whites, they kind of put it in your face blatantly this week in saying that there have been more police shootings of black people since Michael Brown, the Ferguson eruption of 2014, than before. 
That, to me, clearly shows it is not getting better. If anything, it is getting worse, which is about what I thought would happen. And to me, there just seems to be something really uh, perverse, uh, necrophilic about the consumption of black death where this and I've, I've said this for years. I'm just reiterating uh, because it was such a prominent feature of what was reported this week and what got a lot of attention. There seems to just be something really vile and disgusting. And I think it's a major aspect of white supremacy where this becomes entertainment, where we just get to go. We get to play on social media and come up with new hashtags for whoever the victim of the day or the week is. And everybody gets their uh, speeches together where they can be outraged or angry or whatever other rhetoric uh, that they would like to spew in connection with this event. Maybe we get some new uh, T-shirts and paraphernalia for the victim of the week. Folks are outraged. They go through the cycle. I even told somebody where they were talking about some of the commentary that they heard from this week. I said, I've heard all of these before. I've heard all of the speeches, everything that they said this week. I heard all of that before. President Obama, what the police are going to say, what the citizens are going to say. I've heard every single syllable before. Like you could just you could just have boilerplate uh, boilerplate speeches available and you just insert the name. I've said this before as well. You can have that for the T-shirts, the hashtags. All of it, uh, because we're just going to continue to have this. I told Dr. Rasayan this before. There is nothing that can be done about the police shootings of black people at all as long as the system of white supremacy exists. The most you can do is try to minimize it happening to you. But even if you do everything correctly, there is still no guarantee. I was listening to one of the reports where they were talking about uh, Mr. Uh, Castile in Minnesota. And they said, well, he had his permit. You know, he was legally uh, owning, legally bearing arms, as he is constitutionally guaranteed to do. And they had a firearms expert on. He actually teaches the class where you can get your you know, concealed carry permit and everything. And he said, man, from the video that I saw, it looks like he did everything textbook. And I just stopped the audio. I was like, I'm, I'm totally uninterested uh, in listening to anything more. Uh, you can do everything exactly correct by the book and still end up dead. And that's not just in the context of police terrorism. That's any area of people activity. That is what racism, white supremacy means. That's why we should be trying to do as much as we possibly can uh, to solve this problem because it is going to continue. But I do see something really bad. It just reminds me of, of reality TV and tuning in for the black person that's going to die this week. It almost, to me, is very akin to delectable Negro in consumption of black carcasses. That's uh, I think Dr. Curry even wrote about that the most popular black people, in my opinion, in this area of the world over the past five years are all dead Negroes. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland. We don't know black people when they're alive. Maybe President Obama, but we wish he was dead, too. The rest of them, once you're dead, then we can go and learn all about you and your family and relatives and what your goals and aspirations were and everything about your life once you have been shot 41 times. Moving forward with the Dallas uh, situation, certainly that is still unfolding. Uh, lots of uh, content and reports are still coming out. I did think that that was very interesting. Some of the international reports, that was Cape Talk 702, the sound clip at the end where they were talking about the Dallas shooting and the culture of policing where they reported that the suspect died from a self-inflicted wound. Now, that report uh, played. It aired live on Friday, July 8th. Uh, it was 12 noon South Africa time. That would be there's a nine hour time difference between there and Pacific. So that would be 
3 a.m. Pacific time, 6 a.m. in the morning, Friday morning when that aired uh, yesterday. I thought that was very interesting, and that sort of thing does happen when these events happen within the first 12 to 24 hours. You can get lots of reports that have all kinds of things that are stated. Uh, and it might differ. Sometimes they give out inaccurate information that happens. Uh, and then, you know, they clear things up as, as it goes along. But I always think that it is very important uh, because you can see some interesting things, particularly if you can look at a lot of different sources within the first 12, 24 hours within the immediacy of the event to just kind of see what are some of the original initial responses uh, that people had and then compare that to what the final official, quote unquote, narrative ends up being. Uh, but just with the Dallas situation really quick, some of the things that I thought were uh, important that people should marinate, think about. Uh, I'm looking to uh, write a few thoughts on what happened in Dallas uh, within the next 24 hours. I think it's extremely important. Dates, we've talked about that repeatedly. July 7th, uh, this is this was when the police shooting in Dallas, that, that was the 11-year anniversary of the terrorist attacks in London, 7705. A lot of people uh, found those attacks to be suspicious for many of the same reasons that people had questions, still have questions about what happened uh, on 9-11. They uh, compare those two events, but I thought that was important, it being the 11-year uh, anniversary of the terrorist attacks in London. Uh, it happening in Dallas, where John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I have seen that mentioned in most, well, I won't say most, but in many, a substantial number of the reports that I've seen about this event over the last two days have mentioned where John F. Kennedy was assassinated and, in fact, where this shooting took place uh, was blocks from Dealey Plaza where the actual assassination took place, that the victims in the shooting attack from this week were taken to Parkland Hospital. That is the exact same hospital where John F. Kennedy was pronounced dead November 22nd, 1963, and you had an enforcement officer, a Dallas police officer, who was shot and killed on that same day. In 1963, after Kennedy uh, was assassinated, J.D. Tippett, uh, that's just kind of a footnote uh, that gets included uh, when people go back and do their review of what happened with the Kennedy uh, assassination. I think that is important for many reasons. Mr. Fuller has stated uh, and he added context as someone, Mr. Fuller, who lived through World War II and the bombing of Pearl Harbor as someone who was a Washington, D.C. resident on 9-11, the attacks at the Pentagon and someone who lived through. The assassination of Dr. King, as well as the assassination of JFK, he said there has been no event in his life that traumatized people more than the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, he said it was a stunning event. People just could not believe it. Uh, it was as though the world came to a halt uh, while things unfolded uh, that entire weekend from the Friday of the shooting all the way through Sunday, Monday or so. Uh, but I think that is significant and relative to this event because this is also sniper fire in Dallas from an elevated position. Specifically, the word that I saw in many of the reports, in fact, if you do a Google search for the word triangulation or triangulate, uh, the initial reports about this incident, they said that there were multiple shooters. They didn't say it was one person. They said it was multiple people shooting. And if you listen to any of the footage, the video of the shooting when it was happening, it seemed like rapid fire, like it may have been multiple individuals who were firing. And that was, I would say, almost all of the reports that I saw within the first uh, 12 hours, first five hours of this event, they were pretty much all saying in unison that it was multiple shooters, maybe even three snipers uh, with the JFK assassination. That exact term triangulation, where you have snipers generally from an elevated position who are all firing 
at a target. That way you can increase the likelihood of carnage that you, whatever your target or targets, whomever they happen to be, that you will get them because you'll have multiple people firing from different angles. So there really is no place to run. You should be able to get them uh, in a position where you can successfully neutralize anyone that you're shooting at. They use the exact same term uh, when they talk about the Kennedy assassination uh, regularly, particularly people who believe that it was more than one person who was involved uh, in Kennedy's assassination in 1963. I think it's irrelevant, not just because of the logistics and where it was and it being sniper fire and there being uh, different theories and suspicions about what the official narrative of these events in Dallas ends up being. Uh, and what people think may have happened. I also think it's hugely important because what happened in Dallas in 63 obviously had massive and direct implications on who occupies the White House. I for sure think that is going to be the case on this here uh, event, maybe in an indirect fashion, but I think this is going to have far-reaching implications for the presidential election as we get closer to November. I already heard uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton talking about this event. President Obama has been talking about this event. You heard co former Congressman Walsh's comments directed at President Obama. Huge implications for who ends up being in the White House about this event and how this influences uh, people's vote or what they say. I think this is going to be a significant part of the narrative of how we get to whoever is taking that oath January 2007, 2017, excuse me. Uh, other quick things I wanted to make sure I, I got in just in terms of overall context. Uh, this year, 2016, officially represents the 50-year anniversary of the uh, origins, the beginnings, the genesis of the Black Panther Party in 1966. We had talked about that at the beginning of the year. I see a massive correlation in terms of it, it being very symmetrical in terms of white outrage at Negro perceived Negro hooliganism and unrest in the 1960s. You got black people running around talking about black power and the Black Panthers and all of that and it being the same era of white Repression. We're tired of these Negroes being out of line, being uppity, challenging the system of white supremacy and reinstituting uh, re great white force, justifying increased violence against black people, which is exactly what happened in 1966, where it was not just massive violence against the Black Panther Party, but pretty much any and all black people who seemed sound like maybe they looked like they were affiliated with uh, the Black Panthers or any other organization that was working against racism, white supremacy, just a major justification uh, of escalating aggression, white supremacy against black people. Uh, even this week, I had posted the, the uh, link, Mark Hughes, that was the black male this week. They had his photograph circulated immediately as a suspect in the Dallas police shooting. That was the black male. He had the army fatigue t-shirt on and he had his open carry uh, firearm at his side. He was uh, just walking with the protests uh, in Dallas on Thursday. His photograph was everywhere immediately. This is one of the suspects. Help us find him. And then they came out in a real tacky manner later and said, oops, our bad. We're wrong. He wasn't a suspect. We talked to him. We cleared. Uh, and then even the Washington Post and others from a legal standpoint were saying, oh, man, maybe maybe this should not have been done. This is kind of questionable. Maybe, you know, we should have handled it in a different manner. But it was so crazy and chaotic. I posted on Facebook. In my view, that was not an error at all. That is a part of the same, in my view, white supremacist narrative. Any and all black people are suspects. Any and all black people should be treated as criminals, 
and act accordingly. That is, in my view, what this is, not just Mr. Hughes, but any black person, uh, particularly if they're looking or sounding like they want to get uh, aggressive. Uh, I certainly have uh, other thoughts. Uh, the detonation that was reported in terms of how they dealt with the suspect in this, uh, the Dallas shooting situation, Micah Xavier Johnson, uh, but I will leave that. I'm sure other folks have commentary that they would like to get in on that. Also, just with the individuals that they had in custody, I still have not been able to find information about who these folks were that they had in custody, why they felt the need to detain them, identities, photographs. I've been looking and still have failed to find anything. And that's the sort of thing that I contrast with Mark Hughes, where his photo and name and everything was available immediately. These folks that were taken into custody, the three of them, nothing available. I think that is uh, extremely important and suspicious as well. With that, we'll get to the phone lines. The number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. I will again ask if we could not use metaphors. And I would say particularly this week, uh, I know uh, times when people might be a bit more frustrated. Uh, certainly this has been an emotional week for many, many reasons uh, that the metaphors can uh, be employed a bit more under those circumstances. And I think uh, particularly when we are frustrated, angry, whatever the case may be, I think then it's even more to be mindful about the way that we articulate our views, suggestions, thoughts about racism, white supremacy. Sometimes our emotions uh, can get the best of us and we don't articulate ourselves as well as we would like. So if we could not use metaphors, just try to be as clear, explicit, direct as possible with what it is that you uh, are trying to say. And again, I will make every effort to uh, prompt, just remind folks if uh, we are uh, letting some metaphors get in in terms of uh, how we are discussing things. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. If there is background noise, uh, if you could use your mute button, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, if you have the television or people are talking or whatever is the case, uh, you know it's kind of noisy. Just use your mute button. That would be super helpful and uh, help us preserve the quality of the broadcast. And if you could be mindful of your time, there are other folks who would like to share. So make sure everybody gets an opportunity to express their views. Uh, all the folks who dialed in who have a, well, that is not true. Uh, the first portion of people who dialed in who have a hand up, your line should be open. If you have uh, commentary, and I'll just kind of stagger it uh, and go through and nab people uh, as we get through. So the first portion of people who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, go ahead, Thomas, in New York. Well, good evening, Doug. Good evening to all. I'll be um, possible. Um, I wanted to start off by saying uh, this year um, started off terrible. Yes, that's the Dr. Welding, and um, I said, I think this is going to be a terrible year, and I think just this week alone, this year has um, turned out to be one of the worst years in recent since I've been tracking, um, really studying, observing the system of racism and white supremacy. Um, just with the actions that happened, sometimes like the Trump effect. Um, you know, I once heard from an astrologist that. If you want to invoke something new, the best time to do it 
is this week. Um, that's why the 4th of July, they started the 1776 um, with the Constitution. I believe it's quite a few other European countries that kind of uh, Independence Day is this week as well. And I think what we're seeing is the uh, ushering in of uh, white neo-nationalism. I think it's uh, taking place worldwide. I think it's happening in Europe. It's happening in big time in Britain, um, Italy. They killed an African man over there this week um, who was uh, running from Boku Haram, um, just killed him in the street, beat him to death to protect his, his wife. And it's happening here. Um, I think that yesterday's book study session we read about MK Ultra. And I wouldn't be surprised if this attack, um, this guy wasn't somehow trained and brainwashed um, at some point. Um, I also learned this week that 22 soldiers a day kill themselves. 22. That's 8,000 soldiers a year, 80,000 in 10 years. So it's definitely some strong programming that comes from within that military industrial complex. So this whole thing can be a hope because I also watched uh, very intensely after the show. Um, and they were said they were two shooters, they were triangulating everything that Gus just said. And it turns out to be one lone wolf, as they call him now. It was him by himself. I also haven't heard anything about these people who set off in the bin, two people that they stopped to put a bag in their car, this woman. None of that stuff has come up with me. Well, earlier that day, I was listening to the news, and uh, President Obama came on and gave a speech that was um, in deja vu. It was very reminiscent of the Blasio speech. And um, just like the, the day the Blasio gave that speech, those two cops ended up dead. Um, some guy was killed in a train station running from the police, although he just shot some cops and he didn't try to kill the police, trying to kill him. It just didn't add up. And this story, um, here comes um, Obama to give a speech that night. Yeah, you know, that speech is dead. Um, I really think he gave the speech so Hillary didn't have to. And um, she has, her chances are, are so diminished. She's um, hanging out with Trayvon's mom and Mike Brown's mom. And here this, this happens. And, um, I mean, really, what's she going to do? You know, I mean, she, her uh, best bet is to throw the black people, I don't want to use the metaphor, but just to, 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 to you know, do what she, do what she did before. Call them a bunch of super predators and keep it moving and detach herself from us because um, she has no chance now, I, I agree with us. Also, lastly, I just wanted to mention there were two lynchings, I believe, the day of the right, the day after the the shooting, it was two lynchings. Um, I know one was in Georgia, and uh, they were both ruled uh, suicides by the police. Um, and that that year, um, definitely a purge situation. I, I can definitely see a lot of these things starting to happen, and um, I think that this year, before it's over, it's going to be a lot of stuff that that goes on. I'll be my line. And I'll be heard. Yes, sir. Okay, greetings to you, Gus, uh, callers and listeners. <clears throat> uh, I want to start by uh, uh, mentioning the book uh, by John Patash, The Eye of War on Tupac Shakur and Other Black Leaders. And in that book, he specifically talks about CIA members and or FBI members when they uh, uh, perform an execution. Um, after the body has dropped, they stand over the body 
and fire two to three more rounds into the body. And specifically surrounding that Dallas shooting, um, a witness uh, said that they saw someone stand over the police officer and fire a couple more rounds and two the officer. <clears throat> and uh, the other thing that I want to speak on is um, maybe about a couple of weeks ago, um, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and maybe about two summers ago, uh, Milwaukee passed Kerry Concealed, uh, and I uh, immediately thought that that would be an opportunity for uh, police officers to take a shot at people, uh, black people specifically. Um, so I encountered a black male in the gas station that had his firearm out. Uh, he was on his way, so it was showing. So I politely asked him, could I ask him a question? And he said, yeah. So I asked him, well, what if the police see that firearm, one of them yelled gun, and they just shoot you? And um, he really didn't have a response. It didn't seem like that was even a thought uh, in his mind. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I was born in 81. Part of my everyday wardrobe. And uh, one day I realized that the gun I was carrying was only for other black people. And um, it just seems as though... Um, the people that, you know, carry firearms, um, it seems as though that they are only for other black people. And um, I did have a question before I mute my line. Uh, if at all, if Thomas Smith in New York is still on the line, uh, if at all possible, I would like to link uh, with Thomas in New York. I have a personal question that uh, I would like to ask him, uh, something that he mentioned on the program before. And uh, thank you. I'll meet my line. Thanks for taking the call, Gus. For sure. If you uh, drop me an email, I can probably forward you uh, Thomas in New York's email if you want to ask a question or something. No problem with me. Okay, thank you. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, just... Um, an observation about, I'm sure a lot of people feeling similar sentiment, um, the way that the national dialogue has now shifted away from talking about the two victims of police uh, violence leading to their deaths. And now we're now having a different conversation. And just, I mean, Many people who tune in and listen to this show uh, are in degree of becoming awake, alert, alert and aware, and more critical in their analysis of the information that we encounter. But just in terms of encouraging each of those individuals when they're dealing with family members and so forth to recognize that Although the last few days and the last week has awakened a sense of urgency in a lot of our family members, now that the national dialogue has shifted away from talking about the two black males who were killed towards uh, what occurred in Dallas, that many of our family members are undergoing deep traumatic events right now emotionally 
and for us to have some compassion for them and empathy for them and um, be patient with those family members and recognize that, you know, this is a very trying time for victims of racism at all levels of awareness or unawareness. And, you know, and um, I think that what oftentimes occurs is that people who may have been exposed to more information about how racism works and how it operates, um, oftentimes in their zealousness for being exposed to that information, I oftentimes find that many of them don't have a degree of sensitivity and empathy for those victims who are less confused and who are becoming more awake and alert and aware to the reality of our condition. So I would encourage folks to really just be more empathetic. And even if you go back in history and you have to draw a parallel, today, if you went back to like, for instance, the days of Matt Turner and what they called an insurrection or rebellion, today would be the equivalent of August 23rd, 1831, the day after that. And if you think back to how many of our ancestors, the state and condition that they were in after that event occurred, and many of them had to deal with hordes of angry folks who were looking at them and turning their guns in their noose towards them. You have to look at the fact that many of our family members are in a similar condition right now. And just be patient and go towards them. Thank you. For sure. Well said. Well said. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, if you had a hand up and we haven't heard from you, uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Hello, can I be heard? Please let her go. Right on. Mm-hmm. Proceed, Puff. Oh, okay. Uh, hello, greetings, everybody. This is uh, Puff. Uh, just a couple of quick comments about the, the happenings and the things that have been going on this week. Um, and, like, the things that have been going on, but, and then it was some things in the, uh, the uh, clip spray before the program started. Um, I think that now I see a pattern of of uh like when things like this happen uh it seems like the white supremacist media want to look like they they uh try to the first thing they do is contact the the parent or or the relatives of the victim and they it seems like the news organizations re-traumatize the victim and uh, how they interpret their abuse. You know, with the with the questions that came on before about the uh, mother of uh, Castile, Slando Castile, uh, it seems like they were trying to make them uh, interpret uh, their abuse and, you know, how how they, you know, interpreted the shooting and everything. And that seems like the goal of the white news organizations for, you know, for quote-unquote entertainment. Um, but I, I, listening to that clip just now, 
Uh, I 100% agree with the uncle that says that police don't offer any help, you know, when shootings like this happen because it seems like they shoot the people and then don't call the ambulance. Just like with Tamir Wright, this person called the, he didn't call an ambulance for his boy, for this 12 year old boy that he just shot and didn't even get out the car before he shot him. He didn't even call an ambulance. The first person he called was his union rep. And um, I just I just hate the way this is turning out. Okay, and uh, with the Baton Rouge shooting, this person was shot at point. He was already on the ground when they shot him. So you know why not use less deadly force with a taser and and uh, you know it was multiple officers trying to arrest him. It seemed like they could have could have done that, but the most the most distressing, well, no, I wouldn't say the most distressing thing, but it, it just distresses me how uh, in these clips that you played before the the uh, the this call started or whatever, uh, they interviewed this mother uh, that was around there in Minnesota, and uh, this boy said his mother. He told his mother that. He do he do not want to come out the house. He just want to play video games and stay in. And I'm I'm just distressed at that. You know that he can interpret racism. I know children can interpret racism, but I just I just I just I'm really distressed by that. And uh, go ahead, somebody else. One five three six. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Um, thank you guys for uh, tonight's program, and um, I'll tell you, uh, tonight was a night that I had to be here with you all and uh, to listen to the clips that you played and to really hear the commentary that people presented. Um, I'm going to try not to take too much of your time. <clears throat> your BFF, Amy Goodman, was in all her glory this week. And on uh, 7 8 2016, um, when she was interviewing a Mr. Graham Weatherspoon, he made a very interesting statement, which um, has not really been focused on. He spoke about a supposed conversation that he had with, and please forgive, forgive me if I get this um, name wrong, but I believe it was Ray Kelly, uh, New York City Police Commissioner. Uh, he put it some years back, but he didn't give a specific timetable. But he asked him if he, if Mr. Kelly wanted, quote, urban warfare in the streets of New York City, because he claimed that he was approached by many uh, former military black people who then told him, which I find this completely illogical, that they were sick of uh, the mistreatment by the police and that they were going to, quote, start killing them. And, of course, his response, as he put it, was, well, that's not something that you necessarily want to telegraph. And, of course, that's my response, too. Why would black people come to this man who is a white man? I didn't get to actually see the broadcast, but listening to him, he sounded like a white man. So why would they come is a black male. Is he? I am apologetic. So I back that up then. I apologize. But why would they come and tell him that anyway? Anyway, 
Um, so I was I was intrigued by that. That didn't get a lot of play, and then I took some notes. Actually, he did make one good point, which he said Americans live in two states: the state of denial and the state of fear, which is very much true. I just wish that he would say once and for all who the Americans are that are living in denial, because most well. When you press black people to a certain extent, they will admit, yeah, there's a lot of racism. They may not be able to contextualize it. They may not be able to articulate it, but they can admit it. White folks, on the other hand, it's, it's like pulling teeth. Um, I also found, and this was completely accidental today, a Harvard Law uh, Review article from uh, 1914 titled, the segregation of the Negro in separate residence districts. And the beginning of the article, which the entire article deals with, of course, a residential segregation, but the beginning of the article starts off with this. Any attempt to segregate the members of one race from those of another must necessarily carry with it a considerable restraint upon personal liberty. Such a deprivation of liberty is not constitutional if fairly within the exercise of the police power. So I found that intriguing. Um, it's a very short article. It's about uh, two pages. There's a ton of legal, excuse me, that's a metaphor. There are a number of um, legal uh, briefs which are cited. So uh, some people might find that intriguing. So uh, definitely uh, research that. And I don't know if anyone else has heard about this, but in Kentucky in May, there is a piece of legislation passed called Blue Lives Matter. And it just so happens that there is a proposal put in to the um, Louisiana legislation about a week ago, beginning of the month. Um, to uh, pass similar legislation. There's other states that are looking to um, implement such legislation which says that if you kill a police officer, it is a hate crime. Now, mind you, these same places won't pass Black Lives legislation, but they will for um, uh, the police officers. And, you know, I'll uh, save this arrest. Uh, if I can uh, share again later, I'll let someone else go. Thank you very much. Other folks that we have uh, not heard from, did you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers and the listeners. Um, I just wanted to talk about a couple of things um, about Philando uh, Castile. Um, I just found that his girlfriend's ability to maintain her composure in such a horrific um, situation, with especially with her daughter um, in the backseat of the car, I just thought that that was just really something. Um, and I, I, I don't think many people are able to do that in an emergency situation. So um, even though I agree with you, you know, watching these videos all the time is extremely traumatizing for uh, black people. Um, I think that is a, 
a major difference with her video that she did catch everything at the time she did. But um, I, I just thought that that was really just just amazing that she was able to keep her composure for such a long period of time to try and um, at least get as much information to facilitate some form of attempt towards justice in the um, in the uh, period following this incident. Um, I also like Puff. I was um, very weirdly uncomfortable about the black female whose son uh, no longer wanted to go outside. Um, I did think that his, uh, his, I guess, distrust of police to the point where she said they no longer wave at the police is a good thing. Maybe that um, hopefully she'll be able to teach them uh, codification as they grow older. So God forbid they do get come into contact with um, law enforcement, they'll be able to act in a way that's conducive to them surviving whatever the situation is that may arise. Um, it seems like they understand in their minds, at least outside, any place outside of their home is unsafe, even though, of course, um, for black people in a system of white supremacy, inside is not always safe either. either. Um, but ultimately, they, they do understand that once they go outside, um, that, that anything can, can happen to them, which is really really interesting, but it just goes to show to me the importance of teaching your children, uh, especially black children, as young as possible about racism, white supremacy, and what to look out for, what to expect, because even at that young age, they can be traumatized in ways that sometimes we as parents don't always, aren't always able to perceive because they may not come to us and discuss it with us or open up about those things, but I just thought that that was just a very interesting aspect of the clip. Um, also, I found it interesting today. I saw on CNN, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was on with Wolf Blitzer today on CNN. And, um, at one point in their discussion, Wolf had asked her multiple times, um, her opinion on if Philando Castile was white, would he, um, not, would he have not been shot if he was a white male? And he asked, or if they were white people in the car, period, that, that, that would not have happened. And, um, she wouldn't answer. She dexterously dodged the question and talked about all these things that she thought she would do to um, help facilitate some sort of resolution between law enforcement and the community and all of this nonsense. But she never answered the question, and I just found that to be very, very um, interesting. Um, also, I think that she's a part of the reason that these shootings are happening. When she did call black male super predators, she helped to create and further facilitate that atmosphere with which black males are to be distrusted, immediately um, found guilty um, before being proven guilty, and also that it was a free-for-all as far as us being super predators. So what do you do with super predators? You put them down like rabid dogs. And to me, she's a part of this whole process that's taking place, but yet the same people who she's facilitating the death of their relatives are the people that she's um, basically using to make her way to the White House, and you're going to the one of the root causes of the problem for the solution. And I just think that it's just um, just non-productive in my opinion. Um, also, my wife was talking to me earlier. In, in the image you have of uh, Mr. Micah Johnson on uh, Facebook, the dashiki he's wearing. My wife was telling me that she's seeing a demonization of the dashiki as if that's some sort of terrorist um, clothing. It's interesting because the same dashiki that he has, my son actually has the same one, and he had a picture on Facebook which we had him remove um, just so that there wouldn't be any potential issue. 
But um, she did mention to me that she was seeing the demonization of the dashiki coming up. So um, for those people who have them, uh, I know that particular one is somewhat popular, or you might know people that have it, just tell them to be careful just in case because um, you might find some ignorant person who, you know, who might try to negatively assault you because of it. Um, also, I found telling that because uh, Mr. Johnson had a picture with uh, Professor Griff, that some media outlets were trying to make an association between him and Professor Griff. And I had seen Professor Griff uh, post something online where he stated explicitly that he did not know the shooter. So I don't know if that was a book signing or maybe a lecture or something. And he took a picture with the young man. And essentially that's the, one of the pictures they put online. And um, I just think it's, it's not necessarily, um, you know, could be, not so positive for Professor Griff because there might be some sort of terroristic association. Just the way the white mind thinks is just um, just my logic. And also I was thinking about in a year that Donald Trump is running for president and the whole ideology of white supremacy is the unspoken focal point of this entire campaign and a black male as far as the alleged blackmail, because I don't really know how true it is. This is what they're saying, um, is that it's him. So, I mean, I take everything with a couple grains of salt, or should I not say a metaphor. I just take things, uh, I'll look at things very inquisitively when uh, white people put out any information, even in a situation like this. But um, ultimately him, if he's the one who did it, for whatever he did with this shooting, I think will facilitate much more violence towards black males moving forward towards this election simply because of movies like The Purge, like Gus was saying, and um, to suppress any any sort of black male that might show some sort of strength or, um, or some sort of pushback to white supremacy. I think this is going to be a year of literally squelching black male life. Like, it's just not been seen in a long time, and I think this year so far has been proved positive of that. And lastly, I just wanted to say the Congressman Walsh about the statement that he made, um, you know, it's, it's, it's as American as can be where a white congressman can literally threaten a, sitting threaten a sitting president and nothing be done about it simply because he's a white male. Um, I just found that to be very interesting, very telling. And again, it just speaks to the, uh, the psychopathology of where this year is going to go with, with uh, President Obama leaving office to be replaced, I believe, by uh, Mr. Donald Trump. And uh, thank you very much for taking my call. For sure. Fear of a black planet indeed. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you have a hand up and we have not heard from you, did you have a uh, comment? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, how are you doing tonight, Gus, and everybody in the, the room? Um, everything for me, everything started, you know, up in, uh, when did that, Gus, do you know when that bombing in Baghdad happened? I know 250 people got killed over there in Baghdad. I don't know if it was on the third or the fourth. Mm, I can get do the, you know? I can get the exact date. Let's see. But for me, in my experience of after the, it seemed to me after right after midnight, after uh, the Fourth of July, because I went back to work that Monday. And it seemed like at midnight, going into Tuesday, that's when the madness started. 
it started with that shooting. I thought it started with with, with that. It st- I know when I said, damn, 250 people got killed over in Baghdad. Nobody really, it really, nobody really wasn't talking about it. So um, I looked at that shooting with um, over in Baton Rouge, and it seemed like after that it just started escalating, getting more crazy. Then the next, then I was listening to a program on the internet, and somebody called the uh, the uh, guy that was on the uh, podcast. Uh, said we, a shooting just another shooting just happened, and then that's when um, that that shooting up there in uh, Minnesota happened. Then. The next day, I was at I was um, at work. I drive a truck for a living. I wake up and I was looking at the. I I had a notification on my phone. So it, it it woke me up. And then I I I, I look at it and it was the Young Turks and then Saint. He was in his pajamas and said, "It's a shooting um, in Dallas." Um, People, please don't go. I'm like, you know, I said, look, I, so I got up. I said, what is going it, it was like, it reminded me of, in the movie Collateral Damage. It's like, when, you know, with Tom Cruise, when the sun came come up and uh, he was talking about over there in Rwanda when they had that massacre. The sun, 500,000 people. I feel like it's that time right now. I feel like, if I, like I'm getting ready to go to sleep now. And I wake up, the sun come up. These white people going out here losing they they mind. They act like they lose actually. I feel like it's just I've been in the military. I've been in the army. I'm military trained, and I can they can you can feel when it's some some just ain't right. And I feel like you know I don't know if it's a you know the you know the the. It's extermination going on. You know, you know I don't care. I don't want to hear about, you know, black empowerment and economics. We beyond that. It's about, you better get strapped up and try to, you know, survive mode right now. Everything else, you know, is out the door. And this is a good, you know, this is a good platform you could, where you could listen from just the common, common person. And they 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 views and everything, but it just seemed like a I you was you were saying something earlier. I fall in that category where I'm 47 years old. I've been pulled over by the police plenty of times. When I my younger years, I was that type of person. I ride around with you know expired tag, no insurance, and all that. Now you couldn't pay me to get it. If my if I can't afford to get a tag for my car, I would not. I've already done it. Like I, I, I um, I, my license was suspended for a year. I, I called it last, um, last, last um, week and told you I had some a DUI. So my license was suspended for a year. So I couldn't. I did. I I, I had got this was. Before before all this, I, you couldn't pay me to get up in that car and drive like I don't want to have no involvement with the police. So I parked my car. 
that's just how crazy it is out here. And my daughter, I never heard my daughter. I got a 22-year-old daughter. My daughter never talked to me about getting a gun. It's just out of cat. Now I got two boys. Now they, you know, they don't talk about getting no guns. But my daughter's, it, it, it got her the way it is out here now. It, it got her out of character because she never. She's a she's a peaceful person. But um, with the dealings with, with the police and. And I see what's going, what, what happened in Baton Rouge. I don't know if I'm, I don't want to say I'm a special Negro or something, but I never, all my dealings with the police, they, um, I didn't, some let me get off without giving me a ticket. And, you know, but I never had, you know, I, I'm saying this now, but I can get out there tomorrow and it, you know, get shot by the police. But you know, right now, I'm feeling like you know. I listen. I listen to the cows, and I listen to Umar Johnson, the Tariq Rashid, Doctor Boyce. And, you know, I remember when it when it, everything happened. It seemed like everybody had got quiet for a minute. That's why I said that I did. I got some notifications from the cows, the workplace. Uh, uh, program, but it seemed like everybody had got quiet for a minute. Then I seen a, I seen Doctor Boyce. He shot out a uh, sent out what his opinion on everything. But it's just getting it's just getting real. Nineteen sixties right now. It seemed like I'm living back with my parents because my parents my parents was fifty. My father was fifty when. It, he had me. My mother was forty, so I was raised up. I was raised up around old people, and I just feel like. Hold on one second, I just, sir. I just want to make sure we got other folks uh, got an opportunity to share. And if you want to, uh, once we get everybody, if you want to pick back up and tell us, you know, more about uh, your experience and how this compares to what your parents were kind of going through, we'll definitely make time oh, thank, for that as well. Thanks for letting me share. Yes, sir. Oh, and the date for the uh, attack in Baghdad, where they had well over two hundred fatalities, that was Friday, July third. Uh, that was the specific date for the attack. I knew it was close. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Anybody that we have not heard from, anyone we have not heard from, line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, this is the caller in Louisiana. Hi, um, Princess. Hi, Beth. Um, I was just calling... Um, because I only recently found out, well, just the other night, um, I've been avoiding looking at any news because, quite frankly, it's very depressing. And um, I'm, I'm just convinced that, um, well, I, I just don't feel the need to uh, subject myself to any more residual cinematic trauma Um of what white people were doing to us. And like Gus had uh, shared earlier, um, it's becoming painfully obvious now to the point where it's, um, you know, you can't avoid it. But I just don't 
want to, you know, I, I only found out from a uh, friend calling me and um, when I was getting off of work early in the morning and, you know, he was basically describing the video of the shooting in Baton Rouge and went to Yahoo. I, all I needed to see was the still clip and I was just like, nah, I don't want to even bother to watch this because we already know what's going to happen. And, um, but uh, the particular article that I was reading, um, just stirred up my anti-blackness because uh, I read where, so I guess they were, you know, activists in that area were, um, registering people to vote of all things. And I, I just, I just closed the tab because I'm, I'm just, I can't deal with it anymore. So, um, I mean, it's sad, but I just, mm, but I, I don't want to, I'm not interested in looking at stuff like that anymore, trying to, I mean, it works for some people, but I, I just can't do it. That's, that's all I had to share. Other folks that uh, we have not heard from, if you had commentary you wanted to share, line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, the place that is called Kentucky. Uh, once again, uh, a story on the uh, shenanigans of uh, racist white man, woman, and child. Uh, they have literally built a Noah's Ark Museum uh, from the so-called specifications uh, of uh, Noah's Ark from what I was told, uh, in a museum form. And uh, the funding came from uh, the taxes from uh, the the, uh, state of Kentucky, of all places. Uh, And uh, so that's just one of the uh, typical uh, tacky things that white people do uh actually i i deem it as being uh white power in the practice of racist white supremacy uh i just i was just just wondering i i, I because i sent gus a message on it wondering if there was any talk on the uh quote unquote curse of ham that was included <laughs> into uh this uh this uh uh tacky uh uh, adventure. Uh, I'm talking about something like in the uh, something like ten to twelve million dollars uh, was the cost of of this. Uh, another name to add on. I don't know if I, I, I don't think I heard you mentioned uh, add on who was transported and died uh, on November the 22nd, 1963, the, the alleged killer of the president, Lee Harvey Oswald, was transported to Parkway Hospital also. 
I just happened to, about around this time last year, visited Dallas for the second time. I had my son with me because uh, he was uh, at a uh, football camp. So I decided that we uh, take a tour uh, ourselves uh, through uh, the path that uh, the presidential motorcade uh, went through. And uh, we actually also visited uh, Parkway, uh, Parkland, not Parkway, Parkland Hospital, the path that he took from the time he was uh, shot uh, to the hospital. Uh, I myself spent 27 and a half years watching the uh, different means and ways that non-white black people uh, could be abused and or mutilated and or killed slash murdered. So I don't have that much interest into uh, seeing it on TV. Logic tells me I need somebody to tell me if I'm incorrect or crazy. Uh, Whatever rate that we are seeing it live and in color, uh, it's been going on since the establishment of racist white supremacy. Uh, they just didn't have uh, the technology uh, to be able to show it and rub it at our faces on a daily basis. Uh, but uh, so if nothing new about it, stay tuned. It's going to keep happening until collectively a significant number of non-white people, especially non-white black people, start focusing on the problem. Uh, I, need, I certainly would need somebody to tell me that I'm incorrect in some way on that. Uh, the I don't know if anybody saw, but it was presented to me uh, that on, I don't know, the Instagram or something I was showed on somebody's cell phone, uh, the first image of, of the reported killer in uh, Dallas was a white person. I don't know if somebody else saw this on their phone. I didn't have it on my phone, but somebody showed it to me, and and they swear that that was the reported killer until later on most of the uh, so-called news factions uh, uh, tagged uh, this uh, non-white black male as such. When When I saw this alleged first killer, that's supposed to have been a white person. The first thing I thought of was the Turner Diaries, of course. Uh, also, uh, um, one has to figure with the amount of abuse and the difference between, let's say, uh, 2016 and 1816, uh, the technology uh, promotes to where it could be pumped into your your vision, into your psyche, even on a consist- consistent basis. <clears throat> Logic would tell me it's just a matter of time before there is some there is a reaction to that to that terroristic action. Uh, uh, and I would say that probably if 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 everything is somewhat to what is being said, that would tell me on what took place in Dallas. Uh, and that can also repeat itself again. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say on that. 
of uh, oh yeah also this week uh, uh, matter of fact on earlier during that day I got stopped by the police earlier that day uh, in a uh, area that is that is dominated by uh, white people who speak Spanish uh, I don't you know use the word uh, Hispanic, that doesn't mean anything to me, but by white people who speak Spanish, I uh, was stopped by an enforcement official uh, from what I call a revenue call. There was an interesting article that was put on Facebook that identified, as we know, there were several uh, well-known cases uh, where the non-white black victim was stopped for a broken taillight or something of that nature. As most of us know, uh, in, uh, police departments uh, have uh, uh, quotas that they uh, don't admit. Uh, I believe the commissioner of the city of New York was got got very angry when when uh, he was questioned on that on that factor. And I've seen that before out of uh, white heads of police departments when they are questioned about revenue and a quota system. And in turn, that, that leads to uh, the, tra the, uh, the tragic uh, uh, incidents that we are uh, faced with. Uh, my comment on Facebook posts was basically saying that the number one revenue when it comes to non-white black people uh, is our bodies itself. Uh, uh, the the tail light is kind of like a, uh, a very a very low excuse, but the uh, but as I mentioned before, I, I think the revenue mainly is uh, non-white people, non-white black people. Period. Uh, when it comes down to it, uh, and and this issue is not just limited to this part of the world. I think it frequents in in a lot of places uh, also. Uh, so that's all I have. Thank you. For sure. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from. If you all had uh, commentary, you should be with us. If we haven't heard from you yet. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to all the callers and listeners. Um, I had a question. The clip that you played at the beginning with um, Mr. Fuller, um, can you send me a link or let me know what episode that was? Um, I found it very, um, it, it was, I want to re-listen to it again. I had a couple phone calls from people. There was a I guess it was a rally in Detroit here. Uh, people were asking me to participate, and I declined. Um, it's just, <clears throat> excuse me, over the, you know, last few months, I have just decided that that is just something that I am not interested in participating the marches anymore or rallying. Um, and his remarks, he spoke to that, and, and I just want to re-listen to it in detail. So if you could just share what um, episode that was or how I can find it, or maybe you can email the link or post the link. 
Uh, well, I can tell you now, it's uh, from his eighth visit to the program, which was 2010, uh, February of 2010, uh, Mr. Fuller's eighth visit on the cows. I can post a link as well, but, you know, uh, it's okay. visit number eight. That's sufficient. And um, the only other thing, um, I found the, the report of the the hanging in um, I guess that was in Georgia. I find that it's, it's interesting that it's not getting a lot of news coverage. Um, I saw a small clip of it, but um, you're uh, hearing it tonight, just a little more detail. Um, it's just interesting that it's not getting a lot of coverage. You know, of course, the, the, the Dallas police shootings is saturating the news. So um, I have also just come to the conclusion you know, I'm not interested in looking at any of the videos and, and things like that of uh, the shootings. And I've also um, have decided to cut back on just the commentary on Facebook or just feeling the need to respond to certain posts. Um, I found myself getting a little um, impatient <laughs> with uh, with other victims, Um and, of course, it's just a matter of, you know, just the confusion that's out there. So in order for me to to not get frustrated or to um, just uh, increase my patience, I've decided to kind of just scale back on feeling the need to, to um, comment on things. So um, I just wanted to share that, and uh, I'll mute myself. Thanks. Other folks that we have not heard from, if you had a hand up and we have not heard from you, uh, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hello, Mr. Gus, callers and listeners. This is Douglas. Uh, I wanted to uh, say just a few things really shortly. Um, the first thing is that I wanted to define uh, white. My definition of what it means to be white is to kill black people. Absolutely. What it means to be white is to kill black people. Therefore, anybody who claims to be white or who is classified as white or who is a member of the albino colony coming out of Europe after the last ice age, um, they're... What it means to be white is to kill black people. All of them, uh, their purpose is to kill white people. I know this is all in the same, uh, you know, all, all, everything I just mentioned, um, the people who classify as white and then the people who came from Europe. Uh, that's my, my first point. So there's no white friends. There's no white allies, and that's the key. There's no white allies. Um, the reason why I think uh, there's a good possibility for us to lose this war it's because we keep looking for this white ally stuff, whatever that is. Uh, we can just, you know, forget that and, and you know, make sure as many black people as possible have that in their head. There's no such thing. No white allies, no white friends, no good white people. That doesn't make any sense. White means kill black. That's what it means. And then the other thing I wanted to, uh, to say was that um, we really, really seriously need to find a solution 
to um, what we are calling racism or the behavior of these ice albinos, which, you know, I decided I'm going to coin that phrase. I don't want to call them white. And I, I understand, um, you know, the argument to call them white and everything, but I'll call them ice albinos. Um, but anyway, we need, to, we need to find something to stop this behavior. I would say um, to the last caller, I heard, you know, her mentioning about Facebook. Uh, she is kind of, uh, she's been holding back on the post on Facebook. I would just say to, you know, everybody, there's a strategic way to use Facebook. Um, listening to Dr. Welsing, I love Dr. Welsing. Uh, it's really important to listen to her work. Listening to Dr. Welsing, she said that uh, we need to talk about racism. Uh, we need to get as many black people as possible, as many non-white people as possible to understand what racism is, what racism, white supremacy is how it works, um, and, and um, a good way to do that is use Facebook. Um, we need some evangelists, just like the Christians have, you know. We need some evangelists. Use Facebook. And, and invite as many people as possible, as many people as possible to the Cows Radio. Um, I, I think it is a very good job that the Cows Radio does. As, as many people as possible to any constructive um, uh, conversation against racism. And also, it, it needs to be clear that white means kill black. White people means kill black people. That's why they chose to be white. And all of them that chose to, to uh, now it's, it's everybody, even the babies um, are, are now white. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not even just everybody. People aren't just checking a box to be white now. They made that decision a few ge generations ago. But they, they signed on um, uh, to, this, to this gang activity. To this terrorist organization, the greatest terrorist organization, the most efficient and pervasive terrorist organization to ever exist, white people. They joined on to that group to kill black people. Um, that's all I'll say. Thank you. Always grand to hear. No looking for quote unquote good white people and or white friends. Absolutely. It's logical. It's accurate always think it's uh, fantastic uh, to make sure to promote that because that is a major, major part of the problem uh, with going about trying to neutralize individuals classified as white. There was somebody uh, who dialed in uh, last four digits, 8557, uh, who said they were having problems. Your line should be open. Uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm oh, waiting. beautiful. Got you. Before we get to the next person, anybody else that hasn't tuned in, uh, one of our lovely investors, uh, she said that the live stream uh, had been silent. I checked it uh, just since the last caller came on and it was playing for me. Uh, so, you know, it could be interference. It might be something you have to uh, refresh the page, but uh, I just checked it and it was working. Um, and it looks like everything, you know, is, is acting accordingly. So uh, if anybody else is having a problem listening, not via the phone, but if you, you know, are listening uh, online, your computer, whatever the case may be, tune in. Um, or if you're listening at Black Talk Radio Network, uh, if you could let me know if you're having a problem there uh, to see if it's just an individual thing or if there's a bigger problem. Thank you. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, did you have commentary? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I can I can hear the whole broadcast on the online. So I have, have two questions for you. One, I'm trying to figure out exactly when you, I'm, uh, I've been listening to you for last year doing snippets, but I've just been getting into the full shows. I've been running through with the great information. So when exactly do you choose to put the cowbell exactly? Because I'm trying to understand when you do it, because you do it at different times. And another one thing I'd like to
circling around, which is carefree, carefree black kids to 2K16. And there's a bunch of kids singing and dancing and stuff. And I kind of was approaching someone and talking about how that was a little bit of a distraction. And some black people are trying to say that, oh, well, we need to smile right now. And I'm like, well, that's kind of not exact. That's kind of exactly what we don't need right now. We need to kind of take and bask in the seriousness of the situation. So, but I have some some melanated victims that are just like, well, we need to smile. Like we can sing and dance anytime. And I think because of the heat that's been generated by these recent things. Um, we should really take advantage of this time. And, and there's just some people that are still kind of lost and want to kind of smile and dance. And they're trying to kind of take that little opiate for the masses of black people. And so if you can just kind of speak on that, because I feel like I'm, I'm correct that we shouldn't be spreading this hashtag of little black kids dancing and smiling, because that's what they're supposed to do. They're little kids. But people are kind of using that to kind of self-medicate through all this that's been going on. And then I want to know about the cowbell. Thanks. For sure. Uh, metaphors and just my prompt, general prompt about uh, the metaphors. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll do the second question first. Um, I'm reminded of Dr. Welsing. I think SDOT, he was one of the first people that called in talking about being patient. I think that's very important. I think, as you stated, I think for a lot of victims of white supremacy, black people specifically, uh, I think a lot of folks are in pain. Uh, I think a lot of people are traumatized. Uh, I've been hearing that verbalized uh, explicitly. That's what the Uh, Not the retired firefighter who dialed in, but the firefighter in Washington, D.C., who got placed on administrative leave because he was posting his frustrations about black people being shot and killed before the situation in Dallas. Uh, And he said that uh, explicitly. He said that he was being impacted, that he was seeing his other black friends and family members where they were being impacted. They were being traumatized by seeing these events, black people being slaughtered and killed and nothing done about it by enforcement officials. So I think you have a lot of black people that are in pain uh, who do not have a total grasp of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, and even more important than that, what to do about this problem. Uh, not having that information and not knowing what to do, I think a lot of times we just, just try to find anything that gives some sort of solace. That's where you, even in the sound clips you heard, pray. The church in St. Louis, black church in St. Louis, where it was a stream of black churches that were assaulted last year in St. Louis and beyond, Uh, Within hours, minutes of what happened in Charleston, South Carolina, it continued right on through 2015. Uh, But they said the same thing. Let's pray. Uh, Let's pray for those uh, who terrorize and abuse us. That is very common uh, in terms of, you know, well, let's just try to have a good time and, and smile and that sort of thing. These are common responses under the system of white supremacy when you have people that are subjected to terrorism and don't really seem like they have a clear means of alleviating the trauma. And I think that's black people worldwide in terms of just not having a grasp of what is happening to us in the war of white terrorism and then what to do to successfully neutralize it. So I agree we should promote seriousness, but just understanding for a lot of black people, that is very, very difficult. Uh, Dr. Welsing spoke to that. Dr. Kamal Kamban spoke to that, that it is is extremely challenging for a lot of black people in a situation where you're just just being pummeled spiritually, emotionally, physically on all levels uh, to grasp that and then say, well, I'm going to respond as an attempted counter-racist soldier and I'm going to be serious and I'm not going to be smiling and giggling. I'm going to study. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be suspicious of all the individuals around me who are classified as white and try to change the way that I'm conducting myself with them. It's very difficult. So I would say the best thing 
I would encourage uh, you can do a lot in terms of just your behavior modeling is super important it has such a profound impact because uh, you don't get to see very many examples of black people being serious and how we respond uh, I know Minister Malcolm X talked about that that can be huge so I think just all of us on a united independent level we can be serious we can be counter racist in our approach to say well I am not going to engage in praying that racists redeem themselves or change their behavior. I'm not going to look to hold hands with any white person. I'm going to be serious. I'm going to use this time. If that means I weaponize my Facebook or social media accounts in a counter-racist manner in terms of posting content for Dr. Marimba Ani or Dr. Francis Cress Welsing or Amos Wilson or Dr. Kamal Kambon or whomever you think black scholars who have information, life-saving uh, life strategies to help us solve some of our problems. I'm going to use this time to post that information because there might be more black people who are looking for that information now. I'm going to be prepared with my responses, so I'll have information, whether it's articles, books, films that I recommend. I'm going to prepare statements, so anytime somebody, a black person, asks me for commentary about all this, Bam, I'll know exactly what to say and I'll have it distilled so I can be efficient with my responses so I can maximize my effect in talking to other black people. But just going back to what Estad and Dr. Wells and many others have talked about, it is extremely traumatic for a lot of black people to be experienced. I think particularly for black parents, people have been talking about the impact that they heard, black children saying that they don't want to go outside. And I've heard that before. I think uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy, she was on the program that we did on black mental health, which I said should be themed for the year. When she spoke with us at the end of 2014, she said that she heard. It was a black mom. She was with her child. And the mom told her son, put your hoodie on. It's cold outside. Put your hoodie on before you go out. And the child told her, oh, no, I'm not going to put that on. They'll kill me. And she was stunned. She said she didn't really know how to respond. She didn't because this was a younger child. She didn't know that he had been paying attention to everything they'd been talking about with Trayvon Martin and all of that. Black brain computers, no matter the age, they are processing what's happening around us. So a lot of people are traumatized, just being patient, being caring with other black people. If they want to talk, if they are able to have serious conversation, do so. If not, understand what is motivating that lack of seriousness. You be a model of seriousness and just try to do the best you can in a united, independent fashion. But I agree. I certainly am not encouraging any sort of smiling and dancing, anything like that. That's not going to solve any of our problems. The first question. I do not explain uh, the cowbell anymore. This has popped up uh, before. I do try to encourage people using their brain. Even though that is a metaphor, forgive, but I am just, whenever I say it, I just use it as a uh, way to pay homage to uh, Dr. Frances Cress Wilson. But as she would state, our brain computers need to be flexed, strengthened. So I try to encourage people uh, to think and process what they're hearing when you hear the cowbell to just pay attention to what is being discussed when the cowbell is rung. I think if you check out enough programs and you hear the pattern for when uh, it rings and what's being talked about, I think you will be able to uh, conclude accurately what it is. And uh, just judging from people who've listened to the cows over the years, we've had the cowbell for about six years now, it seems uh, most of the people, they get it eventually. If you listen to enough archives or live programs, uh, most people seems like they are able to accurately figure out what the relationship to the cowbell is. So just be patient, keep listening. And I can even tell you there is a specific program in the archives where it is explained. It's in the description and it says exactly this is what the cowbell is. This is when it debuted. This is what it means. We broke it down in explicit detail, but that was some years ago. But it is in the uh, it is in the archives, if that makes sense. Uh, let's see. I 
just muted your line, sir, just because I was picking up some background noise. Uh, did that answer your question? Well, I know the cowbell <laughs> question was not answered, but did that make sense, sir? Um, it made sense. Uh, thank you very much. I just, I'm going to actually come up with some stuff, and I'm going to actually post the cows on my social media. Cause, um, and I'm also going to drop a little bit of money in there cause, um, just because. Appreciate and when you told that, and, and, and one more thing, actually, mm-hmm. I, I wish I had, I wish I was a millionaire because you told that the wait lady from the wheat, wheat money, when you told her to be, when you told her to stop crying so fast, I was like, oh, I wish I had a million dollars. I would have dropped it right then. As soon as you shut her down and then she popped right back up, like she, it was a big, big scene. Like she was an actress. She just flipped those tears right back around. So um, I'm going to do some kind of donation today and um, hopefully it'll help out. Not much, but it'll help out. You got a little bit of help right there, <laughs> this, uh, the author of The Wheat Money. There you go, right there. A little bit of help for your am other I gonna, question. Am I going to have to, like, decode why you did that, too, or no? Or is that just kind of some motivation? Uh, if you uh, paid attention at all to what Crystal Tyler had to say with The Wheat Money and part of the main theme for what we discussed, particularly the first time that she was here, that whole program is just one massive cowbell. Okay, she came more than once, you already think, because I've only seen one archive. She was on twice. She was on uh, in the aftermath of the first, because she went to Ferguson, she and her uh, black male husband, uh, crackhead, and their uh, quote-unquote mixed-race child. (laughs) And then she came back in uh, November. She came back on Thanksgiving Day, no less, uh, December of the same year, uh, where we had her back again. That was the second time. Now, how do you find the archives? Because I've only I found you on YouTube. I didn't find you on anywhere else. Uh, we're on iTunes. Uh, you can nab most of uh, the content. Whites have disrupted uh, the site of where we broadcast many times over the years. But we are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. Uh, we are at Black Talk Radio Network. If you go there, you can uh, just search by the tag for Context of White Supremacy, and all the programs that we've done over the last several years are there. Uh, we're at Blueberry. If, if you follow on Facebook, if you go to our Facebook page for the Context of White Supremacy or my page, uh, I will just post all of the spots where our archives are. We've done. We're closing on 1,600 programs, so there's a lot of content, but uh, it should all be available in those various spots. iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Blueberry, uh, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, There are quite a few sites that have our archives available. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. You have a great night. For sure. You too, sir. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from, uh, if you dialed in with a hand up, did you have commentary? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I enjoy this. Well, not enjoy, but it's very informative, constructive. Uh, I just wanted to talk about something that I didn't hear that kind of went under the radar because of all the other things that happened. Um, Dylan Roof, I guess his team is trying to get out of him being federally, federal, federally, excuse me, charged. About, it was illegal. Something was unconstitutional with the 13th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, and I went to look them up, and they're pretty simple, but again, not being a lawyer, sometimes the words still seem like lawyers speak, so I was thinking maybe a good idea to help solve their problem, because the amendments, they tend to be pretty short for workplace racism. You may may just have some lawyer, somebody go over those amendments to see how they would apply in the workplace, you know, starting with the first one with free speech and so on and so forth, because that would be helpful to everyone at different jobs, whether they have, because I know you did the program with um, P. 
people bringing in parts of their workplace manuals or whatever. But at, since everyone works at a different place, that may only help certain people. The amendments will help everybody. That is a good suggestion. Um, I know Mr. No, just one week. I'm sorry, no. go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I said, I said, you know, just one a week. I'm sure there's some lawyer at a school or something. You know, you can, we're just trying to find out some information to help us learn, you know. Just, that sounds, that sounds kind of constructive to me. Thank you. Great suggestion. I'm going to write that down uh, right now. I know Mr. Williams might be Mr. Edward Williams. He's the uh, founder of counter-racism.com. He wrote a book about workplace racism and using the Constitution on the job uh, to help fight against racism, white supremacy. He might be even someone that would be helpful uh, in in doing that to see how uh, the Constitution, uh, how it can be used on the job to help solve problems, keep us out of trouble. But I'm writing that down right now as a suggestion to to do for the workplace racism segment. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, if you dialed in, you have a hand up that we have not heard from you. Hello, ma'am. Be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, it's Lady. Um, I just wanted to quickly um, discuss what happened locally here. There was a, I believe it was yesterday, um, downtown there was a uh, Black Lives Matters protest. Um, and it was like 74 people arrested. Um, it's pretty pretty terrible um, with the amount of people that were arrested. Um, and then the news stories just keep, um, we have Democrat Chronicle online. Um, so it just keeps going back and forth with changes in numbers um, and with the whole anti-everybody-in-black-lives-matter um, is anti-police. Um, so it's just very, very interesting with that going on downtown. A lot was black, blocked off, um, and you can kind of see the hostility um, when you travel through. So I just wanted to make a brief comment on that. Um, I don't know what's going on with these protests and um, just the amount of rhetoric about um people who are involved with Black Lives Matter or anti-police, um, it's just going to come a point where they basically say black people are anti-police. Um, it's just, I guess, they're trying to be politically correct, but that's just really, to me, the just of it. Um, black people are anti-police, and uh, if you say anything in regards to your injustice, then you need to be arrested, you need to be um, persecuted, you need to have some type of punishment. Um, and so that was pretty much all I wanted to say. I'll mute my line. This was in upstate New York where they were arresting the protesters, quote-unquote? Yeah, um, so I'm in upstate New York, and um, it's uh, Rochester, which is, I guess, the best way to describe it is close to Buffalo, so it's really small. A lot of people don't know about Rochester. Um but, yep, this was yesterday. And um, so our mayor, who was a black woman, um, you know, made a couple of uh, press conferences about it and, um, you know, how she stood in solidarity um, with the police department. Um, but, again, I just I don't understand 
what the whole issue was. Because, like, you could see the people, like, lined up with their hands cuffed on the sidewalk. And um, I had to go around a couple of times, and I, and I didn't see anything that happened. And on the news report, they don't have a, um, a real valid reason for why they arrested these people. Um, they said that they didn't move off the sidewalk quickly enough. Um, and then later on in a follow-up article, it was stated that they were yelling at the police, uh, I guess with the, is it, I think it's called a bullhorn. Um, so uh, I don't really quite understand exactly how that equals being arrested, but 74 people, that's a lot of people, a lot of people in jail this weekend. Wow. Just quickly, I'm going to hush so the other people uh, that we haven't heard from can comment as well. But just Dr. Welsing, this was 2014 when Ferguson was the black person who died of the week. That time was Michael Brown Jr. But uh, Dr. Welsing, she said that she would not participate in any sort of gathering, protest, march, whatever it is. If it's going to be an assembly of 10 people or more, she encouraged not being present. Uh, She said uh, racist man, racist woman, they are master crowd controllers. It is easy for them to manipulate those sort of environments for any purpose. If they want to pay someone to come in and disrupt it, if they just want to have the police come in and say, oh, we saw a gun, now we got to shoot everybody or throw everybody in jail or whatever they want to do. It's super easy for them to manipulate. And I would say, especially now, after what happened this week, you can, you know, it will be drastically increased uh, any sort of escalation or aggression that they want to target, execute against black people in that environment. Uh, I think it will be more than justified and they might even get, you know, a raise and a commendation for doing so. As for the Black Lives Matter being just black people are against police, I think that's already almost the way I'm hearing it stated explicitly. I know Tariq Nasheed, he had said that before. I think some of our other guests have made a similar comment, and I agree completely. Uh, it's, they are just saying Black Lives Matter, but I mean they really just mean black people, period, which is the exact same way they applied things in the 1960s. It didn't matter if you were in the NAACP. It didn't matter if you were with the Nation of Islam. It didn't matter if you were a Black Panther uh, Party member. If you are a black person, you are subject to be targeted. Period. Uh, anybody that we have not heard from, folks who had a hand up that we have not heard from? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you, sir. Greetings to the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I had a few observations. Uh, two, two things that I spotted here locally down here. Um, there was, well, we have a black police chief, and apparently they had uh, a couple of meetings in downtown at City Hall, and he received an anonymous letter from what I'm suspecting are some uh, suspected race soldiers that he supposedly has power over, and they're, I guess, taking issue with the areas they are assigned to and I guess issues with um, uh, monetary things, you know, uh, promotions and um, job positions. And I think it was like five or six different officers, but they did not mention their names. 
So this guy is going to work. He's a black guy. And these guys are functioning with him and acting with him all the time. And, uh, you know, they've gone and constructed this letter and sent it to our news station. So, you know, they made a report, and I tried to go on the, on the site to see if I could pull up a video, and the video wasn't there. But it aired on TV when I was at work on Friday. So I guess they weren't able to find out who those officers were. One of the guys was saying they was accusing him of how he wore his gun walking into the uh, police station. You know, definitely paying attention to the weapons because that's very significant this week. And one of them said that he should be more like Sheriff David Clark, you know, a uh, victim of racism, I think, in the Milwaukee area. And, uh, yeah, that was that was it for that one. And then there was a, uh, it's a, a, a black pastor who I think has been the only one here locally to speak in response to the uh, recent um, shootings of the black males. And, like, I can tell, you know, the confusion was there. You know, he said what he said, but the, like, what was said before, you know, the coming together and, you know, united a lot of cliches and there's no clarity, you know, it's no understanding about racism. And he said, because he, I guess he's uh, over the con- congregation that they're supposed to have a conversation you know, about what to do about it. And he, he didn't provide emphasis on the doing. He um, set more emphasis on the prayer part. So when in the video he posted on Facebook, he didn't go in depth on the uh, action part. He said, we're just going to uh, discuss discuss it in uh, the church or whatever. And he said, you know, I, I used to be very angry about, he used the term white supremacy, but he did it in the cliche sense, the stereotype that is neo-Nazis and KKK. So I think that's his understanding of it. And yeah, I guess they're supposed to have a discussion on it. And he said he's going to use the hashtag in racism. <laughs> And uh, somebody in the comment section said, I don't see any of the white pastoral community um, making a response on this. So they have been pretty much silent. And uh, one last thing I wanted to comment on was, uh, I think it was that that guy that was talking about connecting Black Lives Matter to, uh, I guess, what's happening to the police officers or he used the term war on police and I'm hearing these terms like race war and new world order they're in circulation and they're saying these words like we already don't have that and like I'm not I'm not really following how uh, they're putting these notions out there but a lot of victims I'm seeing starting to follow that and I, I even think Tim Wise even came out and said something and uh, the same people who seem to be, I guess, starting to focus on racism more tend to latch on to the, the white person's response to it and will kind of, I guess, degrade and mock other black people. So 
you know, it's like just to repeat that again, the understanding to understand racism is very important. And uh, one last thing, the I think the guy uh, he was describing about how black people are perceived, black males are perceived at a greater rate or something like that. And the person asked him, do you think that might have to do a racism? And then, you know, he's supposed to be, it sounded like he was very uh, scholarly and scientific, but he, you know, he, he dodged that question. Like, well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that, uh, whatever that's supposed to mean. So, but why, you know, why would he say something like that? You know, when it comes to black males, they're perceived as a, a greater threat. Like, I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but he seemed to have said emphasis and importance on the black male, uh, the perception of the black male. So that's that's all I have. That is hilarious. Not, I mean, I guess it shouldn't. I shouldn't say that it's funny, but uh, that is profound. Uh, if these officers uh, were telling this black. Uh, officer that he needs to be more like David Clark. <laughs> I don't know if you watch Fox News, they have David Clark on like every other hour, particularly now, I'm sure he was on like six, uh, 12 times uh, this week. Uh, he's a he's a victim of white supremacy, blackmail, but they have him on and he uh, generally takes positions that would be very much in support of racism, white supremacy. Like I it pretty, he seems like somebody that white supremacists would just be very, very pleased to have him talk anytime as much as possible. Um, he, he tends to say a lot of the things that a white supremacist would say, but he is a victim of racism. But I would be uh, question: when you say be more like David Clark, what do you mean exactly? How should I be like David Clark? What exactly should I do that's similar to what David Clark does <laughs> to get clarification? And I thought that was a, a pretty monumental Wellsing moment if they also explicitly stated that there was a problem with the way that he wore his firearm. Hmm. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, anybody, if you had a hand up uh, and we have not heard from you at all, uh, you should share. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Oh. I uh, heard both of you. Uh, I guess we'll get... Uh, We'll get our Bay Area caller a second. Uh, the other female, your volume was kind of low. If you could speak up, please. Uh, is this better? Yes, ma'am. Cool. Um, yeah, good night to everyone. Um, I had a, made a couple observations. Uh, I was at work um, this week, so I really got really uh, <laughs> a, a good dose of the news today when I was home. Because I was watching the for the day, and it was uh, it was very depressing. Um, I made a couple a, a couple of observations. I said um, that murderer still in the roof in South Carolina, where uh, he killed nine people, nine black people in the church, and um, they somehow found a way to uh, arrest him without harming him and um, feeding him. And this black male, if this is if it is, as the story, they say it is, this black male, they, they bomb him, this one person. Um, I've also seen, too, this outpour of grief and understanding and humanizing 
of these um, five officers, and I've seen the constant criminalizing and um, dehumanizing of black people on display. And um, I've seen also that the uh, news, I was watching MSNBC, and um, now they're blaming the black men for having weapons. Wep- for having weapons, they think that that's the cause of their death. And, um, yeah, just white supremacy on display. The uh, the cover page on Wednesday for the Newsday was, you know, that a dead black man's body covered in blood. Like, that's the cover page. It's just a lot of, just, just a lot of dead bodies um, this week. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, I was um was thinking about um Dr. Francis Cross Wilson when this stuff was happening because I know that I usually when stuff like this happens, she usually comes on and it was reassuring, you know, her talking about racism and white supremacy. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I have to um pull pull back on um for I mean like stop stop watching. Stop watching so much news because I'm, I'm watching news and I'm thinking I'm like um they hired that liar like he was that's why he was fired from his old job Brian Williams he was fired because he was he lied and MSNBC hires him and they talk about like <laughs> you know balanced news reporting and all this stuff and then Donald Trump the campaign manager for Donald Trump Lewandowski he was fired and CNN picks him up and I'm like these news stations just like. You know, they're working to promote white supremacy. And, I mean, sometimes it's just um, difficult to uh, grasp the extent of white supremacy and how how scary it is. And um, I don't know if anybody heard about um, Bermuda warning the men there of... Uh, Entering the United States and not performing, not um, participating in any um, marches or trying not to have any encounter with the police. I don't think anybody um, saw that. Um, but thank you for letting me share. For sure, I did not see that, the uh, advisory about Bermuda. Uh, Bay Area, Mother, uh, did you have commentary you wanted to share? Um, sure, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, cool. Um, thanks. Oh, I was listening to the clips earlier, um, and I didn't know that there was, that they were, um, bothering, um, Obama. I didn't know that the guy had made the statement about Obama, um, or the President Obama. I thought that was, uh, interesting. And then the responses, the the way they kind of diffused it and made light of it, well, the Caucasian um, people in the media, they kind of made light of it, and oh, he didn't mean, oh, you're reaching, you know, they made it like it was, more, but he's just, he stepped firm on what he was saying, and he basically reiterated what he was saying, so I just noticed how when they do all their terrorism, and then when they threaten us, they water down those threats, and when I was listening to um, others being interviewed about the shootings on the um, black males, by the police officers, they 
they make statements. Even if I look at the comments um, on some of the videos, the statements are just rude and horrific. So I listen to the um, the comments, and they're just asking questions, just like they're on trial, the the victims. And with that Facebook uh, at the instant video, because um, someone sent me that in my inbox, and with that instant video thing that she did after the fact, they're stating, oh, we don't know what happened before, like they always do when there's any kind of footage. And um, I thought that was so cool how calm she was, even though I guess I would have been too, even if she could just come and just straight spray up the car like that or, you know, shoot the car up like that with the person in it. It was just so crazy. I think they're going to do something about that because I heard a guy on the news, um, um, me, one of those Fox or CNN, he was stating that he was agitated about Facebook and that amenity and how that made it look as if the police weren't doing their job correctly. And it just, it wasn't fair to, for the police officers that, and it, it's just crazy. So, um, I just wanted to kind of comment on that because as I was listening to the clips, I was thinking, Oh my God, this is, it's going in a weird direction. And then I also think ISIS, cause I always remember, I've always been told ISIS was black, and then I remember Dr. Frances Clough and she always stated ISIS means black. So now it seems as if they're showing us that ISIS means black. And then with all these, uh, like the Purge, I've never, I haven't seen one Purge movie, but I do remember Neely Fuller Jr. would always say something about Shawshank Redemption, so I watched that movie um, a week ago, and I know I'm late. But I, I, I understood what he was talking about. And I also remember it was a, big, a lot of uh, stuff about the Planet of the Apes. And so I watched one of those little AP movies. And I see, and then it reminded me of uh, Harambe, how um, when that happened with the baby um, in the um, cage, how they were just, oh, Harambe. And I started thinking back to that Planet of the Apes, one of those uh, AP movies. And um how they, when the baby, the monkey was a baby and how they just really, you know, catered to him and stuff. And so, and that took me in the mind of that planet of eight of how, no, 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 this is a good monkey and you're bad, you're bad already. And he, he shouldn't have died because we put all this money into this monkey and, or gorilla or whatever. And it, it just, it's just crazy. The direction is going now. And that, and I also believe that shooting that happened with the police was kind of like a smoke screen because the lady called in and stated something about Dylan. I didn't even know anything about Dylan roof and um, the um, things that were going on with him because they keep it so hush hush, but it just seems like they do that a lot of this stuff to take us away from what's really going on since we were trying to figure out why they're killing the black people like that for no reason and it's at all, all I fear for my life. It's always, you know, they always have a quick response. But then as soon as that shooting happened with the police, it, it's so tricky. I really don't even know what's going on, but you made, you put a black face with that shooting and now this is all black people's fault because the police are getting harmed. So I just think they're going to really tighten up on us from here on out. And it's really going to be terror for us from here on out. And we're really going to see what they're saying. And I'll, I'll meet my line. And thanks for taking my call. For sure. For sure. If anybody uh, is trying to help out, I would like 
to see the new purge, particularly in light of everything that happened this week, since we have people that are pretty good about getting high. And I don't want like the shaky, uh, somebody snuck a camera, like the nice pristine copies so that I can, you know, view it and catch any details. That would be grand. Folks tend to be pretty good about finding movies and I'll share. I'm sure people would like to check it out. If anybody can get their hands on that, that would be great. Uh, anybody that we have not heard from, uh, I'm not taking any calls. So if you dial in like now, you waited, you know, the full three hours. Uh, but people that already dialed in and had a hand up. Anybody that we missed who has not been able to comment? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I've been trying to get through for four hours, so. But anyway, thank you for taking my call. So my question uh, is for you. Uh, and before you answer, I just want to say a couple of things. Okay. Um, the other night, or a few nights ago, you said the separation was not a, was not an answer for us, and I do believe that we need to separate from white people, not within the United States. I think we need to leave the United States, and I know the likelihood of that happening is probably not. Um, but on on the other hand, as well, um, I just think it's not fair for us to have to live in terror every day. Our children live in terror every day. Um, I listen to a lot of discussions. I read books, and I'm, I'm thankful for your show. I do not affiliate with any organizations or any religious groups. This is my own independent thinking based on my own experiences. So I just want to know why do you believe that separation is not good for us? Uh, one, I would uh, prompt about the word fair. I do encourage that we watch the use of that word. I really encourage, uh, I discourage uh, the use of that term in saying that something is not fair. That word fair gets associated with white. Uh, it also okay. gets associated with being reasonable. Mr. Fuller talks about that in the word guide. Uh, but when you say uh, separation, uh, the same thing that I said the other day on the program when I was giving my view on that, when people propose quote unquote, separating from whites as a solution to white supremacy. I said, number one, what exactly do we mean when we use this term separation? How far away would you have to be from racist white supremacists to declare that we are now, quote unquote, separate? Uh, and if you're saying leaving this area of the world to go where whites, as I have been told, not only are they dispersed throughout the planet, but they have access. They have more resources. They travel. They get on whatever it happens to be, uh, a ship, a plane, whatever, and they move to different parts of the globe. So how exactly would you separate? And then the same thing that I said the other day, how would you enforce that separation to say this is where we're going to be, wherever it is on the planet, this is where we're going to go, and racist, you do not have access to this area. We are going to keep you out. The system of white supremacy, to me, logic dictates that victims of racism do not have the power to keep whites from any area of the planet, including our own bodies. That's demonstrated on a daily basis. So I'm just I'm following logic. If I'm talking crazy, if I'm not making sense, people can point that out. But I'm just saying I don't see logically how that would be done. And even what do we mean when we say separation? How far away? Do you have to be to declare that you're now separate and how do you enforce that so that whites cannot have access to this area? We're going to be here and you are not going to be allowed into this spot ever unless we change our mind. So what's the answer? So what do we do? Replace white supremacy with justice. It would have to be getting to a point where racists have been completely 
neutralized, uh, whatever, whatever form that takes where they are not able to practice racism, white supremacy at all. That is the problem. I am still trying to work on that myself in terms of what to do. Now, you, as same thing that you said, United Independent, it might be in your best interest or anybody else that's listening to this broadcast, it might be in your best interest to change venue. But I've just concluded, just based on studying globally, there's no way you can go on this planet where you will escape racism, white supremacy. They dominate and terrorize non-white people worldwide so it would just be a change of venue it might be more advantageous for you to be in a different spot on the planet to deal with and try to work against racism white supremacy but the problem will still be there it's just about trying to get more information increasing our skill at neutralizing racist man racist woman racist child that is the problem that i'm still working on i do not have a solution but uh, i'm just following logic to me, separation is not going to do it. Going someplace else is not going to solve the problem just from what I had already stated, unless I'm in error. And if I'm, you know, not being clear, if I'm not being logical, folks can feel free to let me know. No, I mean, you, you make sense. I'm just, you know, I'm just fishing because it gets, I think one gentleman saying, it gets so out of hand, so out of control. It, you know, I guess maybe for me, it makes me think about maybe, you know, uh, anything and everything I can think of to get away from these people because it, it, it's suffocating. That's how I feel suffocated. You know, and it's not getting any better. So, I know you make sense. I was, I was just wondering. Thank you. No, I appreciate the question. I, I totally understand. I think S. Dot, he started with that at the beginning, and a lot of people have articulated that frustration uh, and just being traumatized and dealing with this. Uh, unfortunately, just my understanding. In Baghdad, the caller just mentioned they just killed over 200 people. I suspect these are non-white people. Uh, in Baghdad, certainly on the continent, you know, they're killing large numbers of black people uh, on a regular basis. So it's just there is no place to go, uh, according to what I've seen, that you uh, escape the problem. And I, I also I also think it is important, uh, that notion of, you know, black people exiting this part of the world. That is a very, very old uh, notion, like hundreds of years old, uh, where people have been putting this for both racists have been saying this, like Abraham Lincoln and black people have been saying that that will solve the problem if black people get up and leave, uh, even though even I think when you started, you a lot of black people uh, in this part of the world, at least the information that I've seen, you have a sizable population of black people who do not have passports, uh, much less the resources to make that a reality, to get up and go someplace else and, you know, get yourself established and all of that. It, it would be uh, a challenge uh, for a sizable chunk of, of individuals who are classified as black in this part of the world. Uh, are there other folks that we missed who have not had an opportunity to comment? Anybody that we missed May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi there, uh, Gus. Um, this is my first time calling into the show. and um, Awesome. Just uh, processing everything that's been happening in the media. Um, I'm in a kind of extreme victimized state. I spoke with you before, Gus, um, in terms of I'm living with somebody who is classified as white. Um, and so I just really get to see the true colors of um, their psyche and, and, you know, just, it's, it's very, um, it's very rough, very hard to, to live with someone so, so cold and just to see, like, I mean, there's no type of sympathy. There's no type of, 
humanity there, you know. Um, but my question in terms of everything that's happening, um, I read a couple reports on CNN where, you know, um, they were telling Caribbean travelers um, probably not to come to the States because of all the racial tensions. Um, and I was just wondering in terms of like a global perspective, like I know that blacks don't have, we shouldn't be looking for um, white allies, but what about like international allies, people who are seeing what's happening to us and, and, you know, seeking to join to, you know, forces to help protect or, or to, um, you know, give some type of aid to black Americans. Um, pretty much the stance I generally take is, uh, I'm about united independent. Um, meaning, you know, you generally, the problems that we're facing, you're probably going to have to deal with on an individual basis. Uh, if that becomes a possibility, uh, where people are networking, certainly with technology. I mean, Hey, we have people on this program as guests from all over the world on a regular basis. Uh, so certainly it will be, uh, increasingly easy, uh, for black people to communicate with other folks with melanin, uh, from all over the planet. Uh, so if, you know, we're become better, uh, at communicating and exchanging views on racism, white supremacy, uh, and figuring out ways where we might be able to help, uh, one another in different spots of the globe, uh, that's great. Uh, but you know, at least, uh, at least the way that I'm seeing things right now, just there tends to be so much, uh, conflict worldwide. I mean, the evidence you see it just right here in the States, black people have a difficult time. Victims of racism on a whole have a difficult time having constructive relationships with our immediate family members, uh, including everyone on this call right now, I think could probably speak. I'm not asking anyone to call out names or anything, but, uh, it's just been my experience. The system of white supremacy, just the contamination, the toxin is so astronomical uh, that we have a hard time with people that we have uh, actual we share DNA with, uh, much less people that, you know, we don't know and might speak a totally different language and have uh, a different history based on where they happen to be located on the globe, uh, that it's probably going to be tough. I'm not saying it's impossible. Certainly there have been folks uh, who have worked to do exactly what you're talking about, and I see a lot of constructive effort with that. I was talking to a black female in uh, the UK earlier today and I, you know, try to make an effort to do that on a regular basis. Uh, it may, may very well be extremely helpful uh, towards solving this problem, but I just try to keep in the forefront of my mind that uh, most of the time, primarily in dealing with racism, white supremacy, it's probably going to be on an independent basis. Uh, it's probably not going to be something where you're going to have a whole lot of help from, you know, people right here in the States, people right here in your immediate family or what have you, uh, or people elsewhere on the globe that more than likely it's probably going to be, you have to do a lot of stuff on an individual basis uh, in terms of how you function, how you, be uh, how you behave, the way we think, speak and act on a regular basis, uh, that it's probably going to be a lot of, uh, making individual choices, uh, united independent, uh, in terms of how we go about solving this problem. And again, I hope this, hope this doesn't sound like I'm, I'm discouraging that cause I, I certainly am not. And I hope this program, we reflect trying to reach out and, and, uh, exchange views, have contacts, uh, with black people that are in other parts of the world. Cause I do think that's important. We have, you know, our folks that call in from Canada and, uh, other spots, uh, on the planet, the UK, uh, one of our investors, he was putting a lot of our content up on YouTube, the video with Crystal Tyler that I shared. He made that uh, program. So this program would be a great example, I think, of uh, being able to network and have contact with black people in other parts of the world who have been very helpful uh, in us solving problems. So it certainly can, but that's not, uh, 
it's uh, I don't think on a regular basis, I don't think that's probably going to be the way that things go in terms of us solving problems. It's probably going to have to be a lot of uh, just you individually doing things without a whole lot of help. If that does that make sense? I see. It does. Okay. I mean, the, the reason why I, I asked that is just um, with the recent um, shooting at the gay nightclub in Orlando, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to hear that um, the shooter, you know, was busting into bathrooms and saying, you know, if there's any black people in here, you know, I'm not going to shoot y'all. You already have it hard enough. I mean, there seems to be a sentiment amongst other brown and melanized people that, you know, black people have had it rough and continue to have it rough in this nation. And for all the issues that whites have with blacks, I mean, here you have ISIS and other terrorist organizations who are on the offense in terms of terrorizing this nation, and they don't carry, I mean, I I really don't see whites with the same type of aggression towards, you know, the the Muslims in this country that they have, you know, towards us. And so I just, I just wonder how that plays out in their psyche and and, um, what type of ramifications that would have for the future. Uh, I do know this, at least it's been my experience, the black people who look like they are being successful at that sort of thing, uh, making any sort of constructive contact with black people in different parts of the planet uh, towards trying to solve this problem and deal with racist white supremacists, like, oh, man, uh, you will get attention from racist white supremacists. That is the sort of thing that uh, they take very seriously and work aggressively to extinguish. So certainly I'm, I'm not I hope I do not sound like I'm trying to discourage anybody from doing that. But they do work very hard at disrupting that. I know Patrice Lumumba, uh, Minister Malcolm X. Uh, those are two folks that I can think of who did quite a bit of that, trying to uh, make those connections with black people in other parts of the world. Uh, Marcus Garvey. And that would be three great illustrations of folks that white people aggressively uh, went after for doing exactly that, trying to get uh, black people to see that we have uh, a common enemy and trying to work together to get this problem solved. That's about the same thing that you can expect uh, 2016 or as long as racism, white supremacy uh, exists, uh, racists aggressively work to extinguish anything like that. Uh, But it's definitely something that uh, should be thought about. And and just like I said, racists, they do tend to do a pretty good job at at creating conflict. So keeping that as mine uh, as well, and just looking for ways that we can minimize conflict. Uh, if you can make constructive contacts with black people anywhere, stateside or anywhere else, fantastic, outstanding, try to maximize those uh, connections and uh, just be mindful that racists, they do look to do a great job disrupting that whenever it pops up. Awesome. And then my, my last question just has to do with like, you know, just general coping mechanisms. I'm not sure. I kind of came in halfway through um, the call, but like if any other callers have, you know, good strategies for just coping right now. Mm. We'll uh, see if folks have any suggestions they would give out for coping. We can make this our, our concluding uh, commentary. Uh, folks that are with us on the line, any strategies you would share for coping, victims of white supremacy coping right now? Stay uh, the worst. Expect the worst from the white supremacists at all times. So therefore, when it happens, you're not even surprised. I would I would say basically stay stay busy, stay busy in uh, in the uh, in the uh, in constructive activity with with other non-white people. Uh, there's always there's always some young people that are that are available. Uh, I don't I don't know what the caller is affiliated with, you know, like maybe uh, 
some sort of religious institution or or school or some sort of uh, uh, park area, especially during this time of year. Most parks have have summer programs uh, and where, where you can you can uh, have a hands-on with uh, children. Uh, I mean, so and 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 basically doing constructive things or start your own. Uh, organization in that light where you are assisting uh, young people that that's what keeps me busy uh, uh, just wanted to just wanted to say added on to the last two callers uh, on the subject of separation uh, not, uh, logic tells me about 99.99 percent of us uh, would have to rely uh, severely on the races for us to get some other place uh, on their airplanes on their ships uh, uh, on in their runner cars, uh, unless we plan on walking far distances, uh, uh, that just ain't going to happen. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, you get you, you, logic tells me you get uh, proficient at something that you concentrate and focus on, and I think that is probably one of the one of the uh means that we need to step up into uh doing is to apply more focus more focus from a logical standpoint on the global system of racist white supremacy and uh and and uh fill ourselves with more and more codification on you know saying the most correct things we could be saying and and, and constructive things we could be saying and doing the most uh, constructive things that we could be doing. Uh, but uh, that's my suggestion as far as coping with all of the things that are around. I mean, this is war. It has been war ever since, even before everybody that's on this phone, uh, everybody who is uh, uh, living today uh, has been alive. It's been before that. This is, this is, this is, war is being, it has been waged in this way on us even before any of us were even thought of. And uh, that's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. Uh, you may think that, that uh, just because you can sit down and watch television or, or do something that you would deem to be pleasant, uh, uh, that uh, it's, it's not actually uh, war going on, but it, it is uh, at all times. Every now and then we, we uh, face with it, we see it on television or something like that. Or, unfortunately, some of us will be direct victims of some of the stuff that we do see on television. Uh, but we got to be more proactive on, on, on the subject matter. Mm. It's a mighty long swim I to think, get to the continent. <laughs> I that, think, go ahead, I, Puff. I think, I think one of the uh, main coping uh, mechanisms for this, for the last person that called, uh, the female caller, I think I think ninety percent of it going to be getting away from their white partner. Because I mean, I can tell that that's a drain on your spirit. That you know, he's ignoring you, or he seemed like it's he's distant or something like that. Just, just the anxiety of that. I think, I think your best coping strategy is going to be getting away from that white partner and accepting yourself as a black woman. And that's it. Now in that light, it, I, I was just going to say very briefly in that light of, of separation, it is a realistic possibility. 
you can you can do that from a from from uh, you know from a standpoint to whereas you're no longer legally obligated to that person uh and and you know i mean uh your 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 inner your inner thoughts and and functioning is more important than any material any anything of material and so you know i mean make that move hey gus yes sir Hey, I was looking at some old episodes. What uh, what ever happened to justice? Uh, we had a question on the floor to answer your question. She, uh, is as I was stating the other day, when she arrived, she was ten. Obviously, she is not right. ten now. <laughs> she is uh, nearly uh, eighteen. Uh, for folks who you know can grasp or just doing the math from when she arrived, but she is uh, looking at colleges and you know has a lot more time constraints but she certainly is still uh processing uh, racism white supremacy in fact i talked to her yesterday she was saying that uh in school college no less uh that they uh were not talking about any of these incidents that happened this week now this was uh this was the morning after the dallas shooting so i don't know if they talked about that or not but at least the shootings of the black people uh she said that they had not talked about those at all uh, they're supposed to keep up with current events and that sort of thing. And, you know, what's happening in the country and be mindful and all that. And not a syllable about any of that. Not that she or I was surprised, but she is still uh, on the grind paying attention. She just has a lot more uh, time uh, obligations uh, at this point. I heard she, I heard an episode where she got on Tim Wise, told Tim Wise, uh, answer the question. And I, I said that. I said that girl. Yep. The archives, uh, for sure. Tim's. I think oh. that was second visit, 2010. Uh, before we tarry too far from uh, the question, did anybody else have coping strategies? Anybody else? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, I want to say I'm sorry that you're in that situation because I know I can just hear it in the tone of your voice that you're intensely victimized, and that's not a great place to be. So I would definitely um, first say I would, I would agree with Puff. Um, try to get out of that situation. Um, create a willingness to cope as, as soon as possible. That will be the first step towards um, healing. Another thing I would suggest, um, Dr. Welsing's sister, um, Dr. I mean, Mrs. Uh, Longcrest Love, suggested a book called um, Love Yourself and Let the Other Person Have It Your Way. Um, that might help you as far as the healing process, um, as far as that, that healing yourself um, in that, within that situation. Um, another thing I would say that has helped me as well is um, if there's other cows listeners in your area, you might be able to connect with them, and that way at least you have people that you have access to that you can speak with um, or maybe connect with or communicate with. So that way um, you might be able to develop relationships with other counter-racist people, and they might be able to help you as well as far as just coping and dealing with things. Um, even if you can't, if they don't live in your area, you might be able to maybe communicate by phone, email, things like that. And then there's also some books. I was trying to find one. There's one that I saw on my shelf, but there's a couple of them about dealing with psychopaths um, and how to kind of um, neutralize the things that they do to you because living with and dealing with a white person is literally you're in the same house as a psychopathic racist terrorist. And I think that some of those uh, skills and um, coping mechanisms that they provide as far as dealing with psychopaths 
might give you tools and tips you could use to kind of mitigate those circumstances while you try to facilitate um, removing yourself from that, that uh, <clears throat> excuse me, physically from that situation. And I just wish you the best as far as this healing, and, and um, hopefully you'll be able to, to move on from that situation soon and kind of find a new situation for yourself that's more palatable than um, that, and I do feel for you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Grand. <laughs> we have a... Uh... I'll tell you what I'm. I'll tell you what I'm laughing about. We get ready to wrap up. Um, anybody? Any other uh, coping suggestions, folks? Wanted to get in before we uh, conclude. Uh, uh, good night, uh, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Uh, can I make a correction? Mm-hmm. When I said earlier, I said Bermuda, but I actually meant Bahamas. Oh, okay, okay, Bahamas. So that's where they're discouraging yeah, black people, okay, correct. from coming to get involved in protests and what have you from the Bahamas. Yeah, right. Got it. Appreciate that correction. Was there another? Did somebody else have a uh, coping technique they wanted yeah, to share? I, I did, mm-hmm. um, Mr. Gus. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yes. So to the um, the lady uh, caller, I would just say um, I believe you had mentioned. I believe it was you who had mentioned um, asking about you know getting allies from um, other parts of the world. I would imagine you were talking about black allies non-white allies. I know you're talking about non-white allies, but I would imagine you were talking about black allies. Um, and I would just say um, one coping mechanism I would just suggest is do what you think works. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's one way that I, I cope with any problem that I have is I'm making, um, I'm doing something that I know is making um, steps towards fixing whatever my problem is. And we have a problem of what people are calling racism, white supremacy, um, which just means that the people who call themselves white kill black people. Um, and so how do you solve that? You said, well, maybe if we had allies, you know, overseas or, and everything. Well, go ahead and, and start that. You know, if you can do that, start that. Most of the, or a good portion, not most of, but a good portion of the countries in Africa, um, their people, uh, um, uh, a good portion of the countries in Africa have people here in America, in every city in America. And if you're in a large city, then you have refugees in America and you have other people who are just here, you know, trying to get here to America or whatever, black people from Africa. Um, make groups. But I would, I would warn you, if you make a, a group here in America, um, you know, trying to bring African-Americans and Africans uh, together, we're the same people, we're all African, but so you understand. Um, the Africans have been told certain things about the African-Americans on their way here. Yeah, I have a lot of friends from Africa. I even took a trip to Africa. My family goes there all the time. Um, I'm just going to say that they, they have, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of things that have been said about the African-Americans, um, and, they, and there's racism works just, it works just a little bit differently in, in Africa to where you need to be just a little bit careful of what I would say and what I was told by um, one of the Pan-African professors in my city is that if you create a group such as, you know, such as this where you're bringing African-Americans, which are, they're, they're African, we're, we're African here, um, and the Africans from, you know, the cotton that have recently come here to America, make sure that you have more African-Americans than you do African in that group. This is just a suggestion that was given to me. But then my suggestion that I'm, I'm to make, make it clear what my suggestion for you uh, is, if you're, you know, trying to cope, do what you think is going to solve the problem. Continue to do what you think is going to solve the problem. That's all I would say. Thank you. Appreciate it. Right on. 
And we will wrap there. Um, in terms of coping, I definitely think uh, getting to solving the problem, extremely important. I think racists, they encourage us to do a lot of things that is actually not moving towards solving the problem. And that in itself is a major part of the problem. Um, so definitely be really actively working towards things that are going to solve the problem and be paying attention to see if there's evidence that this is moving towards resolution. I think Dr. Wilson would, uh, would really appreciate that. Um, I also think in this tides, I think it is important managing mental health. I was pleased that I did hear some, uh, numerous black people saying that throughout the week to make sure you're, we are managing our mental health. Uh, because in my view, just all of this is designed uh, to have us in poor health. And uh, my conclusion, you do not think uh, as well. We do not behave well. No, you don't have well. to talk back. I was uh, We don't function as well uh, when we are uh, in poor health, uh, when we're feeling down, depressed, sad about things. Uh, you just you're not you don't have the same enthusiasm. You don't have the same zest uh, in going about tasks uh, and thinking. Uh, really uh, monitor that and try to make sure that you are doing some constructive things that you enjoy doing that have some constructive value. Again, that's why I come back to the sobriety thing. Racists will say, well, you're feeling bad. Have a drink of this. Have a smoke of this. Have a snort of that. And that is not going to solve the problem at all. That will probably just make new problems. Uh, so definitely uh, try to find some things that uh, you enjoy uh, that will be good for you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and constructive that are not going to make new problems for you. I think that would be helpful in these times as well, because I know a lot of folks have articulated that frustration, sadness, anger, combination of, uh, of all three and more uh, in terms of uh, just what the system of white supremacy produces for us uh, spiritually and emotionally. Um, I was laughing, and I'm saying this is uh, extremely constructive. I was appreciative uh, the uh, patience and compassion, because I know frequently uh, when we have victims of racism who are in tragic arrangements, uh, it's been my observation that a lot of times that we do not uh, acknowledge or treat those folks as though they are victims. A lot of times they get talked to or treated as though they are the perpetrator, as though they have done something uh, wrong. They are the maldoer. And I assert consistently it is the white person who has done something incorrect. They are the ones that have done something wrong, not the victim. That person has just been mistreated uh, in the worst possible way. So I was uh, extremely appreciative uh, for the patience, uh, compassion that was uh, shown and folks giving out uh, suggestions uh, for the female caller who just dialed in. First time caller. Uh, with that, uh, we will wrap things up. Uh, we should be here. Minimum on Tuesday, uh, Afua Cooper, speaking of making international contacts, uh, she is a contacts. She is a uh, black professor, author uh, in Canada. She wrote the book uh, The Hanging of Angelique. Uh, it details the history of slavery in Canada. I think one of our listeners in Canada had been saying how they tend to do a really good job of pretending, lying as though white supremacy uh, is not, was not ever uh, in Canada, and that that is not true at all, that they uh, had uh, the enslavement of black people up there and obviously continue to have uh, white supremacy operating uh, north of the U.S. border. Uh, she'll be here on Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It uh, will be great to get her uh, thoughts, particularly to get her thoughts on some of the things that have happened over this uh, past week, and they've had a lot of uh, momentum with Black Lives Matter Toronto and some of the police shootings that have taken place up there to see how the events this week in the U.S. are impacting uh, 
the way that they're talking about racism uh, in Canada and some of the same problems that uh, we are dealing with down here. But that'll be Tuesday, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The book is pretty good if folks are into reading The Hanging of Angelique. Uh, you can check it out. There's actually a movie that was done about this black female uh, character, the main character in the book. She was a black female uh, who was enslaved, uh, and she made an effort to escape and ended up, uh, it seems, uh, that she burned down uh, quite a bit of property in Montreal in trying to escape. Unfortunately, she was captured. Uh, but they moved, made a movie uh, about her as well, if folks want to check it out to do any uh, preparation uh, for the program on Tuesday. Uh, if you have any uh, questions, suggestions, problems, gripes, uh, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Uh, we'll try to get back as soon as possible. I posted on my Facebook page, uh, the programs that were requested as we were rolling along, uh, Neely Fuller Jr., his eighth visit, uh, Crystal Tyler, her first and second appearances on the cows. I posted them. If you can't find anything else in the archives, let me know. I will post uh, the iTunes address, uh, the Blueberry address, the Stitcher uh, address. Uh, there are numerous spots where you can go and, and get the cows archives, Black Talk Radio Network as well, where you can go through and pick out past episodes where you can stream them or download them at your leisure. Uh, again, I would just encourage folks particularly given everything that happened this week this is probably not a time that you want to be out and about and not thinking clearly sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism uh, we certainly want to be able to make phenomenal decisions uh, to keep ourselves as safe as possible uh, and anybody that you might be responsible for. I think this should go, you know, double quadruple if you're going to be in a vehicle, because it seems like a lot of these problems start in a vehicle. Uh, you do not want to be under the influence of anything. If you're going to get behind that wheel and that goes, if you are a driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian, I think we had a caller dial in this week talking about how he had a problem with the DUI. And I mean, that is just a myriad of problems that's going to follow you and make things difficult for you for years uh, with that sort of thing. Uh, just let's do everything that we can. We do not want to make the job of the Daniel Holtz clause and Darren Wilson's any easier than it already is and not just the race soldiers because just the regular typical racist woman racist man badge or no can be a major life ending problem for black people non-white people keep that in mind and again just sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism if you're going to be in a vehicle buckle up let's try to minimize contact with race soldiers as best we can uh, with that, uh, we will see you all on Tuesday. If we're here before then, I'll post the link so folks will be uh, notified. You can just check Black Talk Radio Network. The Facebook pages always have the updates uh, the day before uh, we are going to broadcast live. Uh, and again, feel free, drop an email if you have a question uh, or need information, untiljustice at gmail.com on Twitter at untiljustice. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh -huh.
Shut a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>